Well, Happy New Year, everyone, and <laughs> uh, good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba. A deity lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. And, uh, you know, black folks, we kind of know that. And, <laughs> and today we're going to be talking about the 183rd anniversary of the Seminole Maroon Spiritual Remembrance of the two pivotal 1838 battles of the Loxahatchee, Palm Beach County, Florida um, event. And, and we're, we're so excited to have... Um, Two folks on the air that are no strangers to our airways, uh, our, our dear brother, uh, Denny Zulu Jean Teeny, and his wonderful wife, uh, Dr. Wallace Teeny, who we don't, we haven't spoken to like in three years maybe this year. And so it's real exciting <laughs> that they both pulled themselves away from, you know, the planning because the first of the two um, uh, programs is tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow, um, January 9th from 1 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And we'll give you all those details, you know, a little later. And then the following week, uh, Sunday, January 17th from 1 to 2.30, Martin Luther King Jr. uh, holiday weekend, uh, it's going to be the second event. So um, I guess maybe, I don't know, should I read your bios first? Should I let you say hey and tell us what this (laughs) is about? Or how should we work this? <laughs> what do you uh, feeling? Whatever, whatever's comfortable for you. Make yourself right at home. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, agree. Okay. I agree. Okay. All righty. Well, let me let me get the bios out of the way so you can know how stellar okay. yeah, then and honored we are to have you all with us. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to start with uh, uh, Wallace Teeny. Uh, she is an independent scholar and professor emerita of English at Miami Day College. She received a Ph.D. in literature from the University of Iowa. Yeah, that famous place, you know, where they have the workshops, you know. Her dissertation, miscegenation, discourse in Faulkner, is it Rees? Rees, yes. Rees, Rees and Tumor, literary text and legal subtext, focuses on the institutionalized use of masked 
Racial Codes in the Literature, Criticism, and Legal Language of the American South and the Caribbean. I think by the time you, you join us again, like the third time, I need to have read this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Oh, yeah, it looks very fascinating, you know, particularly I like the whole idea of the subtext. Um, Dr. Teeny uh, contributed a biography of Maya Angelou to the History of Southern Women Literature, Southern Women's Literature, edited by Carolyn Perry and Mary Louise uh, Weeks-Baxter, and a book chapter, The Militarization of Paradise, The Middle Passage, White Supremacy, and uh, Jean Rees' uh, Revolutionary Triumph to La... Oh, that's French. Could you pronounce that oh, French? Oh, it's French. <laughs> oh, please, don't ask me. I'm not French either. What is the word? Oh, the well, you don't have book. to be. Oh, yeah, okay. it, it looks great. Uh, oh, oh, uh, Baba uh, Dini Tuzula, you can read it to us. Okay, what's the title? Yes, what is it? La... la... <laughs> it's, it's Louisiana of the Antilles in a novel region of the world, but I don't know how to say it. Ah, <laughs> uh, right, right. Um, yeah, and I don't even know how to pronounce um, the name yeah, of la, the editor. La, la Louisiana, la Louisiana is... Ah, yeah, well, you had the right translation. La Louisiana et les Antilles, une nouvelle région du monde. Yes. Okay. And keep on going, um, edited by... You don't by. really expect me to remember that title, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but I don't think anybody is who knows me is ever going to read that article. So that I oh. mean, come on. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, who no. am I going to tell? To, who? who, who no. Whom, uh, no, you, 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 they'll read it. You know, that's what that's that saying, and and Wanda, you know that well. But that saying they have in radio, you could have a. 41 radio station. Somebody is listening. They, whatever you say on the air, it gets heard. <laughs> whatever That's you put out true. there. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, yeah. uh, one of the persons, Alexander Lupin, is in New, in uh, at the um, LSU, and he's okay. a very important scholar. So in the in that field, so that I imagine the book will be read by some people who speak French. Uh, my mm-hmm. article is in English. Oh, okay. Uh, so that it can be read by people who speak English, you know, who read English. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. But oh, I'll, I'll just okay. Interject. That, that Did you send me a that, copy that, of that? I want to read this. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. It was a very interesting thing because what they were looking at was the Caribbean, the French Caribbean, and New Orleans and French Louisiana, like this whole French triangle, so to speak, and um, how that intersected with the South. I mean, it, it, it was a it, it was a kind of a fresh concept. You know, there was mm-hmm. a conference, and, and then the book came out of that. Oh, okay. okay. The interesting oh. part about that, the interesting mm-hmm. part, Wanda, about that book is that it is a story and there's a movie also it's called Wide Sargasso Sea is the book that I'm talking about in the article and the uh the author of the book is Jean Reese 
and her heroine is Antoinette Causeway, who happens to be her interpretation of the mad woman, uh, Jean Reese's interpretation of the mad woman in the attic in, uh, what's the name of the book? Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre. And uh, so she, that's her interpretation because the mad woman in the attic in Jane Eyre was supposed to have come from the Caribbean. So uh, Jean Reese decided she didn't like the way the woman was portrayed. So she wrote her story as coming from the, you know, her life in the Caribbean to kind of give mm-hmm. context to who is this person that Rochester has hidden away in the attic, his own wife, and, uh, you know, as a crazy woman and was going to marry somebody else even while she was up there in the attic, still married to him. You know, but he's oh, a hero. Man. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but then you think about the attic... And then you think about the levels of consciousness, right? Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you think that, you know, like the attic is a part of our psyche, right? It's a part of our consciousness. And so, you know, like what is the attic? You know, is that the unconscious? <laughs> you know, is that the id? Oh, you know, what is do. that? People do, yeah, <laughs> do kind of look at that all, that aspect of that, and that's true. And the interesting part for me was that even though her mother was – called a Martinique girl of French origin, obviously. Her mm-hmm. nanny was French. Uh, her brother had a French name. I mean, all the French stuff, a lot of French stuff. She lived in a house that had a French name, Grand Bois, and all kinds of different things. Nobody ever treated her as French. She was always treated as an English girl. Mm-hmm. So all of her things, and she was never treated as the mixed-race person that she obviously was. <laughs> and so, and if you even said she was mixed-race, people would look at you like, what? You know, even though the book opens with, uh, they say when trouble comes, close ranks. And so the white people did, but we were not in their ranks. Hello? The woman is telling you in the opening sentence that, they were not in the ranks of white people. Hello, so what does that mean? <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's the book. That's the, the article, and, and I will definitely send it to you. Maybe not today, but I will send it to you. Oh, sure. You know, next month is fine. You're busy. <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, you know, I will do it. Oh, thank <laughs> and I may so even much. do it today, yeah. but, you know, I don't want to make it promise. <laughs> No problem, no problem. And Denny Zulu Jean Teeny is a New York-born, uh, Miami-based visual artist and designer, writer, retired educator, and an activist in historical preservation and cultural affairs with an academic background in foreign languages, linguistics, and literature. He is founder and co-director of the Dos Amigos Fair Rosamond Slave Ship Replication Project to build a full-scale international traveling museum, educational resource center, and ancestral memorial shrine, now in its research and planning phase, and serves on several boards related to such restoration and preservation projects as the historic Virginia Key Beach Museum Park, Miami's one-time segregated colored beach, and historic childhood home and legacy of theologian Howard Thurman in Daytona Beach, 
Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> the pre-Civil War Key West African Cemetery and the historic uh, Lachahachi Seminole Maroon Battlefield in Palm Beach County. I mean, it's just like so much history going on down there. It's crazy, right? <laughs> so much oh, African yes. Florida's got a lot. <laughs> like, whoa. <laughs> like, wow. So awesome. Uh, your artwork has been widely exhibited and collected, including several public art commissions, and your writings have appeared in magazines and such scholarly publications as the Venerable Journal of African American History and include commentaries in South Florida African American newspapers. You are the recipient of numerous awards and recognition, including a 2011 Miami-Dade County Pillars Award, the 2013 J.M. Family African American Achievers Award in Arts and Culture, selection as a 2017 National History Maker, a 2018 BM Lowercase E Community Genius Award. Oh, wow, that's nice. A yeah, community. community. <laughs> nice. Oh, be me. Okay, be me. Yeah, nice. Yes. We should be ourselves. Totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 2020 recognition for achievement in the U.S. Congressional Record. You've just been doing it. That's so nice that you're getting recognized. That's great. And once again, you are married to Professor Emerita Wallace Ham Teeny, Ph.D., and you have, both of you all have two daughters. Nice. So, again, welcome. It was so wonderful reading your bios. I hardly ever read your bio, <laughs> Baba, uh, Denny Zulu, because we just jump into the conversation. So this was so nice that we slowed it down to just savor your your work and heritage. I'd like to say, since I'm on, that he also received an award this year as uh, the Knight Foundation awarded, uh, like, about 20 people in oh, town. Yeah. The Art Night Arts Award. Yes. Uh, he's a. I'm a champion of the arts, if you please. <laughs> but it's a really nice award yeah. because it comes with ten thousand dollars to our nonprofit. Oh, great! Awards have money. Yes. Yeah. That's yes. great. Congratulations. Oh wow. Thank that's you. Really great. Yeah, you need to get the MacArthur Genius between the two of you next, and then that's that's more money. Um, yeah, yeah, we've been, I hope you know. he gets it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. Let us know how we, we'll see. Yeah, I think you have to be, you, you get nominated or something, so we should like, you know, right, figure that out. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about, you know, um, the Seminole Maroon, um, community there and what happened, um, at these two battles right. at the, uh, Lacha Hot. Um, Lachahatchee, La- La- and uh, uh, yeah, let me explain that too. Lachahatchee <laughs> is actually a a uh, an English corruption. It it should be Luchahatchee, and it it means oh. the river of turtles. And all mm-hmm. through the south, you'll see those places with that with, where Hatchie that end in Hatchie, uh, or or Hassie and and so forth. And it, it means. Um, uh, well, in some cases, well, Hatchie means river. Uh, so Calusa Hatchie is the Black River, and 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 so forth. And after a while, you kind of get used to you know some of these names. So in in what is now Palm Beach County, 
which is about uh, we're talking maybe 90 miles north of Miami, um, uh, where the Loxahatchee River flows, a small river that flows out into uh, Jupiter Inlet, and Jupiter has the distinction of being the easternmost part of the Florida Peninsula, where the Gulf Stream departs from North America and all of that. And but the, the important thing here is that you know we've we've had this whole narr- narrative about Seminoles and and Indians and you know Florida State University's mascot is Seminoles, and the fact that these were basically just an alliance of freedom seekers, some native from different First Nations, many African American, you know, liberating themselves from slavery, and during the time that the Florida Peninsula was Spanish territory, uh, it welcomed anybody who could escape there because the Spanish wanted folks who could help defend their border against the English colonies. And so it was a place of of freedom. And uh, these battles, the Seminole Wars, you know, are you know, much publicized and so forth. And I would say at the expense of the Seminole peace. I mean, we had two battles in 1838 on two days. Each one was a matter of hours. Um, in either, neither one of those were the Seminoles actually defeated, even though in the second one they were outnumbered. Um, but <clears throat> they were... Uh, dishonorably captured under a flag of truce. And uh, what I'll do is, at at the risk of bending your ear a little bit, there are historical markers uh, at the site. And I'll just read what what they say, and then that way you'll kind of have what the official uh, word is on that. So the two battles took place on January 15th, which would end up being, you know, Martin Luther King's birthday. Uh, in 1838, and then on January 24th was the retaliation. So the first one is called Powell's Battle, which is kind of a misnomer because, you know, um, um, Powell was the uh, Navy officer in charge. So on January 15th, 1838, during the Second Seminole War, the Seminoles met and defeated U.S. forces in the First Battle of the Loxahatchee River. Trying to end the war, Major General Thomas Jessup brought several columns of troops to South Florida, including the Waterborne Everglades Expeditionary Unit, commanded by Navy Lieutenant Levin Powell, in search of the Seminoles. Powell's unit entered the southwest fork of the Loxahatchee River in small boats led by a captured Seminole woman. Marching west, they saw smoke trails rise from a cypress swamp encampment and were, ever, and were suddenly met by hot musket fire from Seminole warriors. A running firefight in the swamp led to, uh, I'm sorry, led by Chief Tuskegee and Halleck Hajo, ended at dark with the Seminoles slowly gaining control. Powell's small force of 80 sailors and soldiers, overpowered by a much larger force of Seminole swamp fighters, barely escaped with severe casualties. Only the leadership of Joseph Johnston prevented what could have been the Powell Massacre. With news of the Seminole victory, 
General Jessup and his main column of more than 1,500 men headed southeast to com- confront the Seminoles in the Second Battle of the Tlaxahatchee on January 24, 1838. And, of course, that's all told from the European perspective. And then I'll just give you the uh, uh, the other battle, and that we'll you know we'll we'll have the that 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 part done. Uh, this is called Jessup's Battle on January twenty fourth, eighteen thirty eight. On January twenty fourth, Major General Thomas Je- S. Jessup, commanding fifteen hundred men, the largest army of the Sem- Second Seminole War, which was from eighteen thirty five to eighteen forty two, marched to the headwaters of the Loxahatchee River where he defeated, they say, approximately 300 red and black Seminoles in the last standing battle of the war. The Seminoles attacked General Jessup's advanced guard of dragoons, leading them into a cypress swamp while they hid and fired from high, dense, uh, a high-dense hammock. Uh, that uh, hammock is uh, the, a Florida kind of uh, geographic phenomenon, sort of an island inside of a swamp. Outnumbered nearly seven to one, the Seminoles retreated to a watery stronghold on the opposite side of the river. They crossed to the east side of the river and waited for the troops to follow. Major William Lauderdale and his Tennessee volunteers held a position on the west side of the river, putting them in direct line of withering musket fire that stopped their advance. After dismounting and drawing his pistol, General Jessup ordered the Tennesseans to follow him as he charged ahead. Instead, they held their position, and Jessup was shot in the face. The battle ended when Colonel William Harney's dragoons outflanked the Seminoles who fled into the Everglades. Several, seven soldiers were killed and 31 wounded. The Seminole casualties are unknown. So this is your um, uh, typical um, you know, Western European description of the events um you know the history books tell us there were three seminole wars for the seminoles this was just a one single 40 plus year long assault on their on their freedom um and what actually happened uh in in so many of these cases the the uh, u.s officers would claim victory um but they would say, well, the Seminoles just vanished into the Everglades. And that was kind of what happened here. But then what they did, General Jessup put out a flag of truce and welcomed the people who survived the battle to come to Fort Jupiter and we can settle things. And when they got there, he just captured them and um, sent most of them on the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma. Um, That Trail of Tears was, you know, it was like along the lines of, you know, Nazi atrocities. I mean, the, I think I've heard something like 40% of the people who did not survive. Um, and then some of the people were handed over to uh, slave catchers. And Jessup is, is famous for saying that, um, you know, uh, this war, be assured, is a Negro war, not an Indian war. Because what what it was really all about was even more than um, Indian removal, because that that you know Andrew Jackson and those had passed that law. It was about uh, not having Florida be this safe haven where um, uh, black folk 
who were enslaved could could escape too. So, and then finally, the last point I'll just make about it that is why it's so important is that it really turned out to be like the turning point in that whole, um, uh, you know, the, the Seminoles pretty much held their own, but um, that's kind of where you could say that the the tide of the whole thing turned. And it, it becomes a place where it, uh, kind of a touchstone for learning so much more about who these Seminoles were, the fact that it was, um, you know, black and red people, as they say, that um, the African-American Seminoles in many cases were the ones who did the heaviest fighting because they had the most to, use, to lose by being re-enslaved. The Native people, I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting that they were cowardly in any way, but they were home. They were in their homeland. They they would They could figure out, you know, ways to, uh, survive and they were not targeted for 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 enslavement. Um, so there are many you know dimensions to this, and uh, one of the themes that we'll be looking at this year uh, in on, on, in in the event on the seventeenth, and we have a kind of a panel discussion, is the Seminole diaspora that people from Florida, Seminole Maroons, or Black Seminoles, uh, ended up in Oklahoma, Texas, Mexico, um, the Bahamas. So we'll get a chance to hear from people from those communities as to, you know, their history, uh, their present, you know, their challenges, their future, and and kind of just bring more of the this whole history to light and and. The, you know, the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll say, and I'm sure, you know, Wallace has a, a few good insights you'd want to add to this, is that um, I don't think I'm the only one who was convinced last year when we looked at the 400 years since 1619 who had the, um, what, the, the idea, the feeling, the resolve that the next 400 years um, – would in the next 400, the African American and Native American struggles will really be inseparable, and that's already started. I mean, when Standing Rock, you know, when those people took that over and right on all their banners, they had Black Lives Matter. I mean, they, they, you know, so we're really looking at, um, you know, events that are good because they teach us about the past. But we're really about creating, you know, the future. And with that, I'll turn it over to the doctor because I'm sure um, she might have some even more interesting things to say. Uh, <laughs> as I put her on the spot, of course, you know. Well, no, I I really have no more interesting things to say. But I, I one of the things that I do want to point out is that there is 200 year intermingling between uh, the Africans. Uh, and the um, Native Americans here. And there we need to recognize that many of the Native people were themselves dark-skinned or black-skinned people, according to uh, the Florida historians, uh, the Yamasee, and I think some people call the Westos. Some of the people were very 
uh, uh, very dark complexion people. So there was a lot of, it's kind of difficult when you're trying to look at this history because for 200 years, these were people who intermingled and then you have the U.S. government coming in at the end in the 19th century and, um, you know, creating uh, these plantations with uh, hundreds of enslaved people who uh, were finding freedom among these people. And, of course, that's why the war was going on in the first place, because these people, these planters were, you know, going to the government saying, look, you got to help me get my slaves back and that sort of thing. But it's a, it, the story is a very complex story because of this whole issue of color in the United States and how it's, treat, how it's not treated early on. People are just called Indians. But there are some people who describe them like you have people who talk about the Mexican Negritos, and then some of those Negritos ended up over this way. And there's all kinds of stuff that we, we're going to have to go to the Spanish records and French records to really get a better understanding of this whole Native American presence who was, in fact, Native American. They didn't all look like the movie versions or the versions that have, you know, come out. They were different people. And it, it, it is something that kind of obscures the history here in Florida because you can't get a, a, a handle on what was really going on because most of your stories and all of your stuff in English is coming from people who will, as we all know, tell the tale uh, from their perspective, and it's not always the way they see it. Mm-hmm. Until the lion tells the tale, the story of the hunt, we will only have the hunter's version. Well, and the lion in Florida is not going to tell the tale because there's too much money involved. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. casino. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, um, uh, Dr. Uh, Teeny, about, um, I believe that you are a descendant of the Maroons, right? Yes, my my grandmother was born on a plantation in what well, that's called Tallahassee, but it's not actually in Tallahassee, but it was a plantation, not plantation, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, reservation, born on a reservation in North Florida called Tallahassee Reservation. She was yeah, a, a, was, a pardon me. No, go ahead. She was what? I I imagine she was Seminole. I have no idea. My grandmother never uh, really discussed that with me, mm-hmm. and the only way that you know, except my mother used to call her that old Indian. <laughs> That was the only way, you know, like you could look at her and see she was, you know, hair, her face, everything. Uh, you could see that she was a, a Native American. But um, she never discussed it with me and my, my, uh, my, it's on my father's side. So, um, 
it's an interesting uh, an interesting story. But one thing, uh, she was very friendly with the Seminole people who used to be uh, west live out in the Everglades west of uh, West Palm Beach, where we grew up, where I grew up, and where her home was. And they would come by and visit with her, uh, leave their huckleberries under her front porch until she, till they went and did whatever. And those are some of the stories. But as far as her having told me or discussed that with me, uh, the only thing she did with me was she was a quilter, and she used to have the quilting, and she tried to show me how to do the quilting and tell me about the quilting, but she did not connect that with being uh, a Native American person. You know, and you you, you brought up a, a, a really um, key point in all of this, why so much of this is a mess. Um, you know, the Native people, um, most of those nations were matrilineal. You know, if, if, if your mother is, whatever your mother is, is what you are. The U.S. government comes in and creates all these categories and tribes and, you know, divide people according to what they think makes sense and play people off against each other. And so a lot of the, you know, uh, the, the mess people are going through comes out of that. So like, for example, with, you know, your grandmother, um, okay. When segregation and Jim Crow went in, okay, you had to be, you're, you're white or you're colored. Well, these people who are Muscogee or, or you know, let's say, well, we're well not. no, you, if you were Native American, you had to live on a reservation. Right. At that at that particular time when she made the decision to be uh, black, you know, to marry a black man and to be black, uh, she really, if she claimed her Native American heritage, then she had to live on a reservation at that particular time. I don't think that lasted, but at one point that was in effect. Mm-hmm. And then the United States government came up with what they called the the Dawes, D-A-W-E-S, uh, blood quotient. Uh, and this was it, it, what it reminds me of. I mean, it, it came before the Nazis, but it reminds me of those Nazi formulas as to who is a Jew, who is a pure German. And this justice, all of this confusion and white people deciding for, for other people what they are and what they qualify to be. And a lot of that legacy is still going on. The, the, the Seminole Nation in Oklahoma, uh, the Great Seminole Nation is comprised of 14 bands, two of which are called Freedmen's Bands, which is problematical in itself. But they're <laughs> black bands. And there was all this um, contention where you had the other bands of whom a lot of those people, you look to look at them, you wouldn't even know they were native because basically they're descendants of European. squaws who were raped. I mean, basically, and the Cherokee Nation went through the same thing where they were trying to just um, exclude all the Black Cherokee out of the nation. And well, um, what are you what are you doing? This is this is this is who these people are. This is. Um, to you be know. a Seminole is like being an American. 
it's not a tribe. It's like if you're an American, that doesn't mean that you're white, although that's what the uh, the whole issue is right now. But it actually means that you you could look you could be Chinese, you could be uh, uh, from Africa, from Asia, from Europe, from anywhere to be an American, and that's the same thing for being a Seminole. Mm-hmm. That it it's not necessarily that you are a Native American person, but that you are a part of a group of people who came together on Florida soil and were seeking freedom, and you set up free free cities. There were several uh, free cities in the state of Florida set up by the, um, the Seminoles, uh, Black Seminoles and others. Because at the time, it, this whole idea of black Seminoles, I mean, all of this is, is somewhat new because it was just Seminoles. And then this whole thing of black Seminoles came along when certain people decided that, that based on the color of the skin, right. all kinds of yeah, stuff. Yeah, right. But the, the – because uh, basically they were maroons. I mean um, – uh yeah. we we this the word Seminole was a Muscogee, the people that they call Creek kind of de- derived from Cimarron, Spanish, which was the word that the Spanish used for um runaway Cimarrone. livestock. Cimarrone. You know? Right. Cimarrones would be the plural, right. Yeah. And um so that became Siminoli in mm-hmm. the native tongue and then that became um uh seminal but interestingly enough the same spanish word cimarron is how we got maroon so in jamaica in suriname in panama all these places mexico and even here you know the great dismal swamp on the north carolina virginia border um you know you had people who found ways to escape from slavery and create independent free settlements where they could live the African way. And it's it's absolutely remarkable to, um, you know, when you kind of encounter people from um, those locations, how much of traditional knowledge has been um, preserved, you know, healing and... Um, building techniques and so forth and 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 that kind of stays you know um, pretty closely guarded see the interesting thing about maroons is that as 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 um fascinating as the story is as empowering and inspiring as the story is those places thrive by the the less people know about them you know uh the better um, I had a student, uh, uh, we, we used to do a very um, uh, kind of uh, innovative take on the humanities class. We, um, I, you know, I had a, a department chair who was visionary enough to allow me to do the concept of doing a living textbook because I was saying, well, all these textbooks in humanities would have you believe that the only culture that matter comes that matters comes out of Western Europe and North America. There'll be like 
15 pages on everybody else, Africans, Native Americans, and, you know. And so, you know, our concept was um, each student had to go get knowledge, cultural knowledge from their grandparents or great-grandparents generation and come and teach it to the class. And it was, uh, well, I mean, it was just great. I mean, it was it was just one of those, those. Um, I mean, each class became such a, um, and, you know, such an experience. But it, and I think the real beauty of it was folks saw that, God, there's so much knowledge and culture that's not being recognized. Um, and, you know, it, it's, 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 you know, so strong. And in one uh, lady, and this was a middle-aged woman, she was um, taking the class. She came in and she spoke about mountain people in, you know, South Carolina and places, that there are whole communities of just free black people who nobody messes with them, you know. uh, I mean, nobody goes up there with any nonsense about, you know, what are you doing here or you need to pay taxes because, you know, they know that you know, those people are not to be messed with. And, you know, but as I was saying, the, the, you know, the less attention that's paid to them, the better they like it because they can go on with their lives. So it, it, it you know, um, uh, this whole story of the Seminoles, there's just such a good introduction to the point that Wallace was just making about how, the real truth of America, the real truth of what this is, is here's a place where the human race is, you know, just, you know, being human, and then you have just this real perverted, psychopathic, sociopathic, um, uh, you know, drive that, you know, some people think that it's their right to rule everybody else, and, um, you know, they want to be great without achieving greatness. <laughs> so, you know, the only thing they can turn to is guns and violence that, well, you know, if they can just impose their will and that gets us into the lynch mobs and all of that and, and the events of this week. I mean, um, I know a lot of us had that when we looked at how that, that whole thing unfolded and the people, the police who were there supposedly to protect and defend the capital, um, just let this happen. I mean, claiming, oh, well, you know, we, we were overpowered. Um, you know, how many people pointed out, well, when Black Lives Matter were there, I mean, look at the force that you all had out there, and that was just a peaceful demonstration. <laughs> Nobody was showing up with guns or evil intent. So, you know, that's all ingrained in this culture, and, you know, we look at it not as uh, something to complain about. We, you know, you know, we, we say it's better to light a lamp than curse the darkness. So when we do these events, like the Loxahatchee Remembrance, we're, we're talking about building the, the same future, partly by learning about the crazy past and how, you know, intelligent people uh, coped with that, um, you know, found ways to um, be free, have their farms, their herds, and 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 be uh, you know raise families, but you know they 
they just came under attack as free people all over the world come come under attack with this pandemic called white supremacy. You know, I mean, yeah. COVID is just right. showing up. Sorry, the sorry to interrupt but, you, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Danny Zulu, but um, we're almost out of time, and I, I need you mm-hmm. all to tell our audience sort of how do they participate uh, in in these two, um, you know, um, remembrances. As well as you know, repeat the um, like when they're happening, and if you want to tell us sort of who's going to be speaking tomorrow, not tomorrow, yeah, tomorrow, <laughs> um, that would be great because we're we're out of time. So tomorrow, tomorrow we'll be live streaming uh, on Facebook, and um, you can check on our website, uh, which is www. f Mm-hmm. Which which is FBHRP, which stands for Florida Black Historical Research Project Inc. Mm-hmm. So it's F B H R P I N C dot org, and FBHRP stands for Florida Black Historical Research Project Inc and dot org so it's www.fbhrpinc.org okay that is our website and on our website you'll be able to find get the the facebook links there too and you'll be able to get the um the information for well the programming is we do a sacred remembrance of the people um, in which we bring in uh, uh, re- uh, religious people yeah, to uh, Native American, Native American African. African. We have uh, Indian, um, Hindu, right, Hindu uh, prayer that is done. And we have uh, American uh, prayer, and we are going to be honoring the 212-plus children who were removed from the site uh, on tomorrow also. But this will all be virtual, uh, streaming, live streaming through uh, Facebook. Tomorrow, the other event on the 17th will also be a virtual event through um, like a Zoom webinar type of event, and we have that link on our Facebook on our page also. Okay, sure. And on that link, on that on that day on the 17th, we are going to have representatives of the Mexican uh, diaspora, people from Mexico, from Nacimiento. We'll have uh, someone from Texas, a senator from Oklahoma. Uh, We'll have someone from the Bahamas. uh, What's his name? The young, Boleg. uh, Michelle Boleg. Michelle, oh, her name. Michelle Boleg from the Bahamas. And we're going to have... uh, People from the uh, the cemetery association, the uh, Seminole Cemetery Association, 
in uh, Texas, Brackettville, Texas, Brackettville, Texas, and she is Wendy Goodlow and 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 uh, a woman called um, Gigi Pines. Gigi Pines. Yeah. And we're also going to have representatives from Florida who I'm going to represent. Well, I and um, uh, uh, Samuel Tommy. From Samuel Tommy Tribe. from the Seminole Tribal represent. Uh, Florida, so we're going. To, it should be a very interesting program on the seventeenth, mm-hmm. and it should yeah. be a, tomorrow's program is also going to have, yeah. but it's going to be different. There are yeah. two different types of programs. Yeah, and what you'll find striking is how those communities really, those people, take care of their history. They really make sure to go, you know, to know that and research it and and share that. Uh, yeah, we also have Dr. Rosalind Howard, who has written a book on Red Bays uh, in the Bahamas, right. and uh, uh, talking about the bah- the the yeah, um, yeah, Black Seminoles in the Bahamas. Black yeah. Seminoles in the Bahamas. Oh, he'd be really awesome. Okay, excellent. So that is um, one to two thirty p.m. Uh, mm-hmm. tomorrow. Uh, January 9th, uh, 1 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And the following week, Sunday, so tomorrow Saturday, the next week is Sunday, um, 1 to 2.30 again, um, Eastern Time. And uh, that is Dr. King's birthday weekend. And it's going to be really excellent. And it's live streaming on your Facebook page. And people can go to the website, as you mentioned, um, uh, where is it? Oh, here it is. Uh, FBHRPinc.org to get links to the programs. Sounds real, much easier than trying to jot all this down, but it's not that difficult. So, um, and I have all of that here in the description as well here um, on Wanda's Picks. Thank you both so much for giving us a little teaser about <laughs> about this. You know, tomorrow and the next week. You know, this great programming. Really appreciate it. And thank you so much for making us a pick among Wanda's picks because uh, <laughs> we know that uh, we're in high cotton. <laughs> thank yeah. you so much, Wanda. Happy, happy uh, New Year. Blessings and blessings and more blessings for you and your the work you've been doing, which is so fabulous. Oh, thank you so much, and blessings to both of you for your your good work, and also you know for wellness and and good health, you know in your families. Um, I know right now you all are having some struggles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, along with a lot of other people. So you know we we put our prayers out there. And, yeah. And I I always like to quote that Brazilian proverb for those who you know have faith. You know, they say, "Don't tell God you have a great problem." Tell your problem you have a great God. So <laughs> Oh, I like that. Nice, yes. nice. Well well yes. my other guest has been hanging out in the uh green room, so let me bring her on in. So again, thank you so much and good luck um on, on tomorrow and I'm gonna pop in and check you all out um on both both weeks. It looks really, really good. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rhonda, and give our best to your guests. Oh, sure, certainly. <laughs> all right, peace okay. and blessings. <laughs> Okay. Thank you. Take care. You're welcome. You too. Okay. Good morning. Uh, how are you doing? It's been a minute. Good morning, Wanda. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hi. Good morning. 
Doing great, thank Good you. Yeah, yeah. So Stacy Hoffman, Executive Director of Living Jazz, and you are the folks that bring us in the name of love. A musical tribute honoring Dr. King, and you've been doing this since 2001. Wow. This is our 19, yeah, our 19th I was there. It was at Calvin Simmons. Like, what? Like, what? (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. Um, And, of course, we were by hook or by crook not going to let this pandemic get us down and find a way to persevere um, as everyone else is out there. And we're just so grateful that we will have a beautiful show and hopefully an inspiring experience for those who come and join us online. Yeah, yeah. So um, before I I read your bio, tell us, you know, sort of how it's going to look, because I know Living Jazz kept up the programming for 2020. Um, You know, you did an online version of, of what you all do, and it was, I came to the event with Wynton Marcellus, you know, the conversation, it was high level. Oh, my gosh. It was just, you know, it was like up close and personal, right? It was very nice. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, well, it was really lovely. Know, at the mm-hmm. Yeah, at the beginning of the pandemic, we would have been, uh, well, we were right in the middle of our Jazz Search West program, which is a Bay Area jazz talent search that mm-hmm. meets uh, over the course of seven weeks and just build steam. And we were in the middle of that and, of course, had to immediately shut it down. Um, They were live uh, performances with with emerging artists. And once we did that and took a breath, we, um, among a financial crisis that we were about to face, of course, we also needed to very quickly figure out what we could do. We had to quickly learn how to do it. And uh, over time, we had to face what we felt was Zoom fatigue in the public for concerts online and ask ourselves, well, you know, if we were our regular community, what would we really want to be doing with our, our time when we're isolated and forced to stay connected through the computer? So the first thing that happened was um, our summer season was fast approaching and we ended up producing summer camps online, uh, which mm-hmm. were way more successful than we could have ever imagined. It was something to behold. And, and of course, our community was just so um, forlorn that they weren't going to see each other, uh, missing the kind of immersion experiences that our summer camps provide, and really were wanting to come together however they could. So we did an adult camp online, and then we did a youth camp for 10 to 15-year-olds, which were um, amazing. I mean, really amazing. And we, we were very devoted, especially with the children, to not just consider it as a music camp, but to give them a different opportunity to get in smaller groups through breakout rooms on Zoom to talk to one another about what they were facing, what they were feeling. We had trained counselors that were really adept at talking to children and guiding them through a way to form a safe place to to talk. And we felt that more social psychological dynamic was equally as important um, as it was to provide a music class online. So 
we made it through the summer very well and went through a pretty dramatic fundraising campaign to get us out of the free fall that we were in financially. And then um, this call and response series that you're referring to, which uh, which Wynton Marsalis was one of the people that uh, provided his time for us, um, we asked ourselves, as I mentioned earlier, what would we really want to be doing? Because we felt that people were fatigued by concerts online. I know for myself, um, I, I'm not that enthusiastic. The energy, the liveness, that real life connection, of course, isn't there. And, and then I thought, well, you know, what I really would want to do is hear from the people that are iconic in the music community to find out what they're thinking, what they're going through, and to give them various topics that might be relevant to who they are in their music to talk about. And so that is what we did. We set up a series of interviews where um, we had an individual with a moderator that made sense to be connecting and asking questions to that um, individual. And this is one of the silver linings of COVID where we have found that we were able to secure artists such as Wynton Marsalis, Virginia Carter, Terry Lynn Carrington, Kurt Elling, T.F. Monk. Uh, we have another one coming up with Christian McBride. And these are individuals we honestly we would not normally connect with in this way because they'd be on tour, they'd be gigging, they'd be out, um, and they really probably would not have been as generous, quite frankly, with their time. But each of these artists donated their time. They did this free of charge um, to provide a support to organizations such as ours. Um, they want to keep jazz alive. And so these, these uh, call and response events, I, I just love them. I thought they, I, I really think they're amazing because you're getting to listen closely to personal information. You're getting to hear people talk. I mean, you, you wouldn't normally have this kind of opportunity. And then the, the public has to ask questions. There's a Q&A at the end. So they've been going really well. Right. Yes, they are really nice. And I was wondering, do they um, do they live somewhere after the uh, the live program? Or do they live on your website yes. or something? Or oh, they, no, okay. they're on YouTube. Yes, anybody oh, can YouTube. watch them. Okay. They're now. Yep, they're on YouTube. You just have to Google "Call and Response Living Jazz" and you'll find them. Hmm. Nice, nice. Yeah. So, so tell us about um, "In the Name of Love." I was just reading. Oh yes. The lineup, it looks phenomenal. Oh, my goodness. And how's it going to work out? Well, this is obviously an online event. It will be streamed on Sunday the 17th at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, Mm -hmm. And it is a fabulous lineup. Honestly, I'm really proud because just like all other organizations, we've been making these things happen with a turnaround that's very quick. And... um, when you're up against the challenge of not being able to be in person, what you need is to find a way to get the material from individuals. Um, So basically, let me kind of run through this event because it's pretty exciting. Uh, First, it will be hosted by Dana King. Dana King has been the MC for the event for a number of years, and um, she used to be an online, uh, excuse me, 
online. She used to be a radio uh, talk show host. Uh, she was, excuse me, a television talk show host. Sorry. Um, very, you know, recognizable, just amazing woman. She left her career um, and uh, is now an artist, um, just an incredible sculpt- sculptress. Anyway, so the event will be hosted by Dana King. Uh, we will have Toshi Reagan with the great drummer Allison Miller. And for those who don't know Toshi, she is the daughter of Bernice Johnson Regan from Sweet Honey and the Rock. And she is a stellar performer, um, New York-based, just a powerful powerhouse of an artist. So we're very excited to, to have her. Uh, we have Kronos Quartet and McCleat uh, performing. And again, as you mentioned, yes, the Kronos Quartet is just incredible um, group. And uh, they're really one of the most celebrated and influential ensembles that exists out there. And McCleat, uh, for those who don't know, is an Ethio-American vocalist, singer, songwriter, here based in the Bay Area. Just a beautiful and interesting singer. We also have the dynamic Miss Faye Carroll, Bay Area treasure. Um, just an incredible performer. I love Faye. I've known Faye for decades, and she's pretty much participated in anything Living Jazz has ever produced. Um, so she will be on the show with her pianist, Joe Warner, we also have Tori Teasley and the Teasers. Tori is somebody that I just met this year. I, I didn't know of them before. Um, they're an incredible Oakland-based performer and uh, very soulful. We also have the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir. Uh, this mm-hmm. choir, many people don't realize, uh, was created through Living Jazz back in the early 80s and then eventually went on and became their own independent uh, touring recording organization with uh, the great Terrence Kelly always at the helm. We also have Janice right. McKenzie and Brian Dyer, uh, who will mm-hmm. be singing Lift Every Voice and Sing at the top of the show, which is a tradition. We always start out with Lift Every Voice and Sing. Um, and we have our Living Jazz Children's Project, which we've oh. been teaching. Yes, we've been teaching free, we've been providing free music education for 18 years now in under-resourced Oakland public elementary schools. And typically they showcase as the opening act at our tribute, of course, when, you know, it's live. And we have 300 second and third graders grace our stage. It's a magnificent site. I mean, if anybody's ever been to the show, they'll often say that's their favorite heart. It's just incredible. And of course, this year, everything's been different. We've been teaching our classes on Zoom. It's been quite a challenge, but we've been dedicated and persevered with our children. And 26 of them volunteered to be part of a recording project outside of the classes. So we actually held recording sessions on Zoom with 26 of our children, and we're editing together a video piece uh, with them. So you won't get 300, but you'll get the spirit (laughs) of 300 in the best way that we could with our little ones who were honestly brave enough 
to be video. This wasn't just audio. It was video of them each singing one at a time through Zoom. So you can only imagine how scary that would be for a little one who's never done anything like that before. So we're pretty excited that we were able to pull something together to represent them. And then finally, we have a young man, an incredible young man named Miles Staples, who was one of the winners in 2019's Oakland MLK Oratorical Fest. So he will be doing a spoken word piece. And then to top it all off, uh, mm-hmm. Congresswoman Barbara Lee will be present and she will be presenting the Oakland Citizen Humanitarian Award to Noah Abulata, who is the founder and CEO of Roots Community Health Center. Oh, so that's quite nice. a show right there. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's going to be phenomenal. Wow. So 4 o'clock. And what do people do? Um, how do they get to the program? Yeah, they simply go to livingjazz.org. You must make a reservation. It's a sliding scale with a free option. So everybody can come. Um, We encourage donations, but that is absolutely not required. And um, everyone out there, no matter where you live, whether you're in the Bay or whether you're in Africa (laughs) this year, which, again, is one of those funny silver linings. You Mm -hmm. can be anywhere and watch these shows online. So um, we hope people will take advantage of it. Of course, with what's going on in this country, all of the Martin Luther King events that are going to be provided online, we hope people out there take advantage so that we can get back to a right frame of mind, you know, a sense of what we all hope the change will bring coming up here in the future through, again, a sense of grace, Um, acceptance, respect, generosity, all of the values that we've been losing um, in this uh, past four years. We hope to reclaim them, and we remember what Dr. King stood for, inclusion, acceptance, nonviolence, love, peace, all of these things that we want to come back to, and so... Uh, it couldn't, you know, the timing couldn't be better. Right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So um, I hope, you know, I hope your your family and in the Living Jazz uh, community has um, sort of weathered the pandemic and that you're all doing well because it's been a year of a lot of challenges and loss and grief. Yes. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. been very tough. I mean, we had to lay off long-time staff. It's been heartbreaking uh, in order to survive. Um, we had to, honestly, we've worked harder than we've ever worked before. Uh, mm-hmm. I, to be frank, haven't had a break since March. It's been tough. Mm-hmm. However, it's been worth yeah. it. And mm-hmm. um, that uphill battle is really worth it. Our community rallied around us. We made it through 2020. We did not have a deficit, which is a magnificent uh, proclamation, I have to say, um, given that we couldn't hold our programs. We, you know, we had to cancel our summer season, which is our nest egg. That is where we bring in most of our revenue in our week-long immersion camps with hundreds of people. So, and of Mm -hmm. course, this year we're looking at the same problem. It's not going to happen. So we're going to have to weather two years of 
massive loss of revenue. But I believe we'll get through the second year like we got through the first year um, through wow. a lot of hard work. And, uh, and it's such an incredible, generous community who wants to see us survive because they want to come back to these programs. Um, mm. You know, these people, people rely on these programs. They want them to happen. And, of course, you know, we've had um, the benefit of emergency relief. There's, there's arts relief out there for organizations, um, maybe not as much as a lot of people would wish for. But, it, but you know, it's really been helpful to us. So we're grateful mm. to the state of California and, you know, the county Alameda, the city of Oakland have all been trying their best uh, through emergency funding. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. And and then, you know, you're also, you know, um, besides, you know, sort of being, you know, uh, at the helm of the creation of so many wonderful institutions, you know, like the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir and um, and Oakland Jazz Choir and, you know, this wonderful legacy in the name of love, which couldn't come at a better time, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. I mean, it's just something. It's, I find I can talk about it in a, in a way. It's you know we're speechless about what we've been seeing and experiencing and hope to reclaim. It's such an uphill battle now, but um, mm-hmm. we'll get there some way somehow. We'll just keep climbing, right? That's all we can do. Right. Yeah, yeah, and and then you know um, you know you've worked as a, a marriage family therapist, licensed uh, psychotherapist in private practice in Berkeley since 1988. So you know, and you're also a mother two sons you know you've got you know you know you're sort of like working it on a lot of levels insofar as trying to like working and helping and doing uh you know sort of the type of uh practices that that lead to um you know sort of you know when people are sort of having trouble um to have you know at your fingertips you know, both the clinical um, type of tools as well as, you know, having this great art because art is a bomb, right? Art is a way that people work through things. And so, you know, to be working with the children who are not in school, you know, they're doing online education, which is very different. (laughs) Uh, Some children are starting out school online, like this is their first class, you know, they're like kindergarten and this is how they get introduced to, to school, via virtual school. So, you know, having, I believe, you know, sort of you could talk a little bit about this, having, you know, sort of the kind of programs that you have and, and the kind of um, cultural sharing that you all do, you know, at Living Jazz, I'm sure it just really helps the medicine go down, so to speak. Yes. I mean, first of all, thank you so much for recognizing um, information about me that (laughs) many people don't know. Uh, I do have another career. I am a psychotherapist, and I am doing it on Zoom now. And Mm -hmm. as you say, you know, this is all the same work to me. Uh, I have been working in the psychotherapy field and in the music field both for 36 years now. And they are so wrapped up in one another because it's about trying to fulfill a void, 
trying to provide inspiration, trying to help people have a sense of agency, a sense of purpose, and to look for ways that they can turn towards creativity and inspiration to overcome, um, you know, isolation, loneliness, despair, anxiety, depression. And whether you are turning towards a therapist or some sort of a mental health um, avenue or you are turning towards the arts, you're turning towards wellness is what you're doing. And uh, the experience that I have has really helped fuel my work for Living Jazz. Everything I've ever done has come from a place of trying to help people feel better and to provide inspiration. And yes, we want to be musically excellent. And yes, we're a jazz organization. And yes, I'm dedicated to the music. But I will tell you, at the heart of all of it, has always been for me how to create community, how to help people find like-minded friends, how to inspire them, how to find educators who are also inspiring, mentors who are supportive, who are loving, who don't care if you're so great, you can be a beginner. So it's, it's, there's really been a focus all along on everything we do in the um, psychosocial element of the human. Um, and because I know about that and have an understanding about that, my, the way in which I've designed things has benefited from those skills. And I think anybody who has ever attended a Living Jazz program picks up on that. It's not directly. In the end, they probably do uh, because we're very, very community-oriented. Uh, we're very much about teaching our children you know, for example, with our education program in the schools, we don't just provide music education. What we're doing is we're teaching them about civil rights. We're teaching them about inclusiveness. We're teaching them about acceptance. We're teaching them how to be a better person. We're teaching them about how to respect one another, how to make friends with people by sharing your unique lineage so that instead of it dividing you, it connects you. So we, we teach these things. We talk about these things. We teach them about important civil rights leaders so they understand why somebody was important and how they can be inspired themselves. Uh, same thing at our youth camp. We are very keen on the emotional connectedness between diverse children. And not, along with all the music classes they take, there are all these activities where we behind the scenes are weaving in opportunities for them to gain courage, gain respect, be a positive and loving audience for, for others, no matter whether a child is, you know, skilled or unskilled, pretty or not pretty, popular, not popular, awkward, not awkward. We set the stage to help them respect and celebrate everybody. So again, not to belabor it, but it's very much a part of the way I think and uh, try to design and launch programming. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm really, really excited about, about Sunday. Um, it's one of my, it's almost sort of like a, a way to start the new year in the name of love. I mean, isn't that a great, 
a great sort of affirmation in the name of love. We do things in the name of love, right? <laughs> and that's uh, right. And yeah, mm-hmm. I I'm excited about it myself <laughs> because I need it too. And you know, when you're in the trenches working on these things, and then you finally get to step back and watch it, because um, mm-hmm. we all we all need to be refueled right now. Oh yeah, totally, totally right. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for for joining us, and I want you to give give the information again about um, about the program so people don't miss it. Yes. So we have Sunday, January seventeenth, four p.m. Pacific Standard Time, in the name of love, the nineteenth annual musical tribute honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You can RSVP at livingjazz.org slash MLK Tribute. livingjazz.org slash MLK Tribute. If you just get to livingjazz.org, you'll find it uh, there. <laughs> but if you go to then you'll get to, straight to the landing page. Um, as I mentioned, it's a donation-only sliding scale. Um, you can support us with a donation, but you are free to come uh, for free, actually. So it's accessible to anyone that wants to join us. We hope people will be there. And again, we'll have Toshi Reagan and Allison Miller, Kronos Quartet with McLeet, the dynamic Miss Faye Carroll, Tori Teasley and the Teasers, the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir, Bramis McKenzie and Brian Dyer with pianist Glenn Pearson, and mm. uh, the Living Jazz Children's Project. Miles Staples of the Oakland MLK Oratorical Fest, and our beloved Congresswoman Barbara Lee, uh, who will be giving us a message and presenting the Oakland Citizen Humanitarian Award to Noah Abuelata, founder, CEO of Roots Community Health Center. Right, yeah. Ah, you know, you wonder year after year, you know, how can how can you top it, right? And you just keep on breaking. You know, raising the roof, literally. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, we <laughs> hope next year, you know, we'll be back in person mm-hmm. celebrating together uh, live and filling up a beautiful theater. That's the goal. So, But if not, mm-hmm. we'll continue to do what we're doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You take good care, and thank you so much for the work you do. Thank you so much for having me, Wanda. You take care, too. You too. Peace and blessings. Bye. Bye bye. So our next guests um, are going to be uh, two um, two wonderful authors, uh, Ishmael Reed and Dr. Glenn Paris, uh, to talk about Afrofuturism, and uh, they are a part of uh, a program that uh, Kim Shuck, the uh, poet laureate for the city of San Francisco in collaboration with the San Francisco Public Library, are hosting what's called a Poetry Jam, the Afrofuturist edition. And that's going to be on Thursday next week, January 14th. And um, and so it's a free event. Uh, it's going to be broadcast on YouTube. And I think I, I don't think I uh, I didn't put the t- the time of it. Let me look and see what time is it happening. Ah, <laughs> uh, let's see. Scroll down. Scroll down. Scroll down. <laughs> oh, 6 p.m. 6 p.m. So yeah, and other other writers besides Ishmael Reed and uh, Glenn Paris are Stajabu, 
uh, from Sacramento, Deborah Major, former um, uh, poet laureate for the city of San Francisco, Avacha, and uh, and Tarita McHale. Ah, it's going to be awesome, awesome. And these poet grandmasters will light the universe with words celebrating blackness and the universality of life itself. It's going to be awesome, awesome. And uh, you can register in advance for the program, or you can just pop in. And it's on the same channel, as always, for San Francisco um, Public Library events. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be really, really awesome. And uh, and so while I wait for my guests to join me, I am going to play a little bit uh, from Aglit Hadaro um, in collaboration uh, with um, a friend of hers. And uh, I'm trying to think on a day like today, by the time I figure it out, <laughs> our guests are going to be with us. But um, Or I could just play something... Um, of hers. Yeah, I could do that. Um, this is a really nice one. It's called On a Day Like Today, Abba Mado. And I'm not going to be able to play all of it because we are not going to have enough time. But here's a little taste. Good morning. How are you? Hello? This is Ishmael. Hi, yeah. this is Ishmael. Hi, yes, good morning. Is. How are you? I'm doing, I tried the other number. And, uh, what other number? 4015. <laughs> yeah, 347-237-4015. Oh, that's the number. That's the right number. Yeah, well, I called it. They said the... it was not, they said the phone was not, the, it was not operating. Oh, hmm. Okay. Well, it must have worked because 
that's how you're here. <laughs> but I'm glad you. I'm no, glad no, no, you were I able dial, to make I, it. No, I dialed another number. I dialed another number. That's why I'm here. Oh. I dialed another number. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I'm still glad you're here. I hope. Okay. Um, yeah, I hope Lynn is not having a similar problem. Uh, yeah, because I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. But right at the moment, you're in the studio, and uh, and okay. I wanted to ask you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I, to, I had a little told our audience that you all were going to be joining us, mm-hmm. and that you were yeah. um, a part of. You're part of the uh, Poetry Jam uh, Afrofuturist uh, edition that's going to be, um, you know, a part of that reading next week. Yeah, but, um, yeah. on the 14th, I think, yeah. Sunday, right? Yes, exactly. Sunday. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Thursday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let me read your bio, and then we can just jump right into our conversation. Um, yeah, Ishmael Reed have, is you, the you winner. Have to spend, yeah, no, no, you have to spend a whole lot of time on that. Why don't, why don't we just go into oh. the conversation? <laughs> okay, all right. So a lot's been happening, um, you know, this week, and a lot mm-hmm. has happened, um, you know, just we just think about 2020. And I was just wondering um, sort of how are you making it through artistically? Um, like are you doing a lot of reading? Are you doing a lot of writing? Sort of what do you, like how do you, like, manage, um, for want of better words, chaos, um, you know, as an artist, um, does it give you creative um, uh, ideas? And if so, sort of, you know, what's going on for you right now in this moment? Well, I sort of react to uh, the events that are taking place in the world. And mm-hmm. uh, so a number of my, uh, I do, uh, I've begun to do short stories. I was asked to do a short story by Chris Farley of, uh, Audible, audible.com, the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the audible, uh, the listening, uh, you know, sort of like listening books. Yes. And so I did something called Malcolm and me, which is still, uh, selling uh, at mm-hmm. Amazon, Malcolm and me, which is about how I met Malcolm X in 1962 in Buffalo and my subsequent, uh, meetings and uh, conversations and my assessment of him. And then I had the most recent uh, piece I did for Audible is The Pool Who Thought Too Much. The Pool Who mm-hmm. Thought Too Much, which takes place uh, in the late 1700s Germany, where the fools were threatened with extinction because of the Enlightenment. And, you know, mm-hmm. at, at one time, the fools only had free expression. They could say what was on their minds. The Enlightenment wanted everybody to have free speech. So, I mean, there's a conflict between the two the two cultures. And then um, I did a play called The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda, which got recognition all over the world and uh, brought a lot of tax because uh, I challenged the idea that Alexander Hamilton was an abolitionist. And uh, so my idea was ridicule in the New York Times, NPR, Broadway Central, which is a trade magazine of the theater world all denouncing my uh, assessment of that play. But finally, the uh, estate of uh, Alexander Hamilton's uh, father-in-law, Philip, uh, mm-hmm. General Philip Schuyler, admitted that uh, Alexander Hamilton was a slave trader and sold slaves for others, and they produced receipts. So I don't know whether the people are going to apologize or <laughs> not. But, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm working now on a play uh, that I hope to get done 
uh, uh, this year about mm-hmm. uh, how uh, uh, Jean uh, Michelle Basquiat was uh, was exploited by art dealers mm-hmm. and uh, artists. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really now in great. terms of, in terms of what's happening last last week. Yeah. Uh, I think that there should be an assessment of uh, how privileged uh, white men uh, form American opinion because they're behind the times. They go to these they go to these privileged schools and they talk to each other and they really don't know what's happening outside of their circle. And so I have a piece that was published in Mother Jones this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, about the, who does the first draft of history About how we mm-hmm. suffer Because uh, Opinion is monopolized by men Whose uh, resumes Are interchangeable and don't have a single Idea what's going on in, in our country mm-hmm. Oh wow I like that Who does the first draft of history I have to read that That sounds fascinating mm-hmm. yeah, You're you're a really wonderful essayist And, and you, you write in all the genres You know um, you know, you're a playwright, you know, you write poetry, you write novels, you know, you, you write in all the genres. And, Wanda, my opinions are more welcome abroad than here. I don't have any trouble getting hmm. published in El Pais in Spain or Liberation in Paris or Haaretz in Israel. It's in the United mm-hmm. States where I have a difficulty placing my opinion because uh, I view uh, I view uh, politics reality from living in a black ghetto for 40 mm-hmm. years, and I don't view it from Cambridge or Georgetown or some other privileged place. So uh, that's why my opinion differs from the kind of mainstream opinion or the token opinion, you know, the, how they select tokens to be spokespersons. So mm-hmm. that's why I have difficulty here. But I have no problem getting published uh, abroad. I've had op-eds in Japan Times Weekly. And El Pais, when they wanted us to know what was happening with Black Lives Matter, they asked me, and I was talking about how the Ku Klux Klan and the Nazi Party have infiltrated the American uh, police forces. And you saw that in Washington, where General Honoré is now saying it was an inside job. Now, we could have told them that 10 years ago that the right wing has infiltrated uh, the American police departments. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I was wondering... Um, do you want to share, um, you know, some of your writing with us um, on the air? Um, you know, poetry, prose, something well, from I your have play. A, my new book, my new book okay. of poetry, mm-hmm. uh, was published uh, last month. My my daughter had a book too, Tennessee. Had nice. Her new book, her collected works, published also, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> I call this uh, book. Uh, why the black hole sings the blues? It hasn't been. It won't be reviewed in this country. I give up on that. I probably get a better view in Italy or China than mm-hmm. in this country. But mm-hmm. uh, I wrote a poem about uh, the murders and the police killings in 2015. It's called Red Summer, uh, 2015, and it's set to music by David Murray, and nice. it's on a recording. Uh, it's sung by a gospel singer. Uh, this is called Red Summer 2015. Nine Christians are shot by a man with a scheme. He was nurtured and leaned on a textbook of lies which honored slavers, Jefferson Davis, Nathan Bedford Forrest, and Robert E. Lee. 
The devil entered Vesey's church disguised as a youth. The Christians took notice of his hoof for a foot, but everybody was welcome, even Daniel Roof. His mind full of bile, he martyred his host. A mother played dead in the blood of her child. But the Holy One's prayers with it African with their African roots almost moved young Roof. Quote, almost had me shouting on my feet that I almost forgot my heinous deed. A child was shot down while holding a toy. The police asked questions, but nobody was blamed. The stars in his eyes went dim in the day. He lay on the pavement where the children play. A man was shot while running away. The shooter took aim as though he were game. The demons are parting with their buddies, the fiends, and having a good time. Red summer, the year is 2015. Okay, let me turn the page here. For making his meat by selling cigs loose or making a, little, a lane change, they will give you the noose. Before his final heave, Eric Garner said, I can't breathe. His neck was crushed. He could breathe no more. They found Sandra dead on the jailhouse floor. A grand jury looked and issued a tone. They blessed the killers and allowed them to roam. When Dorsey got news that both wife and child were dead, that's our move in the summer of dread. The spirit was his guide when he wrote that great song. But who is the God who will take our hand? And who is the God who will lead you on? Don't you get weary, Martin said, when he spoke of his dream. His words have kept us from drowning in screams in this bloody summer of 2015, where killers and murderers reign supreme. You brought down the flag. You all joined hands and cried but you still have highways and buildings honoring those who committed high crimes, who didn't want people to be free. Jefferson Davis, Nathan Bed Forrest, and Robert E. Lee. That's it. Mm. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're still living in that particular period. Well, mm. you know, I, mean, uh, I think that, uh, you know, we uh, sometimes lack a, a vision of history because, People talk about the Pettus Bridge where, um, uh, you know, the martyrs, uh, you know, were were met by the highway patrolmen. Yeah. But 19th century was much worse where uh, blacks, uh, you know, were massacred when trying to assert their uh, right to vote. There was a massacre in, in the 1860s in New Orleans where uh, black men had convened to uh, talk about their to fight against the Jim Crow laws, and they were massacred by a uh, police force that included some Confederate, uh, ex-Confederate soldiers. It's called the Slaughter of the Innocents, which we have forgotten. Mm. But uh, when Andrew Johnson tried to do a little introduction to himself when, after Lincoln was shot, he took a tour of the North, wherever he, wherever he, he landed, or whichever city he had visited, the hecklers kept shouting, remember New Orleans, and hang Jefferson Davis. So New Orleans was something, a huge event, uh, that massacre of black men who were trying to vote or trying to uh, fight the Jim Crow laws 
There are a lot of atrocities that happen like that, but they've been buried. Like, you know, we're just getting around to Tulsa, 1921, mm-hmm. where 300 black people were killed. I worked for the martyr he, who just was recognized. I worked for A.J. Smitherman. He was in the Times last week or so, he, editorial pages. The mob was mm-hmm. after him. They were after black people because they were too prosperous. They looked too good. You see, now they say we, they're mad at people because they're on welfare. Then, but if you prosper, they get mad at you too. So I worked for him. I didn't know this history of his, his until I left uh, Buffalo, New York, where he had a newspaper until years later because he's, he was uh, on the lam. They were trying to uh, get him. But uh, he was finally exonerated, and uh, now they're talking about reparations for his family because the mob burned out his house, and his family had to flee to Boston. Then they went to Buffalo. So uh, we just getting around talking uh, talking about 1921, where 300 black mm-hmm. people were killed. So the kind of stuff we're going to through now is, uh, uh, you know, difficult, uh, and uh, you know it requires persistence. But the 20th century and 19th century were much, were much worse. Yeah, yeah, and you just think about. Um... Wow, I didn't even, I didn't know about that, and and I'm from New Orleans, um, Louisiana, but yeah, there. There's, there's so much, there's so much history on, on that. Mm-hmm. There, yeah, there's as a matter of fact, the great cartoonists, the greatest, mm-hmm. I, a person I consider the greatest cartoonist, American cartoon, Thomas Nash, did a, mm-hmm. a, a illustration of that massacre, oh. and I mean it's just a great okay. work of art, and if you look mm-hmm. up Thomas Nash, N A S T. And uh, keyword slaughter of the innocents. You see that great uh, yeah. drawing he did of the massacre. Mm, okay, great. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I was just thinking when you were talking. Um, oh, there's Glenn um, about um, you know the whole thing around um, you know integration um, uh, being being challenged around public transportation. You know, in mm-hmm. in New Orleans. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of mm-hmm. and and then the um the largest slave insurrection um mm-hmm. anniversary is mm-hmm. coming up. I guess this you also you also yeah, had, today. You, you also mm-hmm. had you also had an interracial uh, uh, strike where the whites and the blacks joined in New Orleans, nineteen six, mm-hmm. where blacks mm-hmm. were uh, picketing. Uh, blacks uh, were uh, felt they they were uh, under oppressive working under oppressive uh, conditions at the docks. They were longshoremen. And they went on strike, and the white workers joined them. And uh, the administration, the city administration, and the uh, the uh, shipping companies tried to divide the blacks and the whites, but they held together. And uh, you know, negotiated an agreement. But the whites and the blacks uh, stood fast. And one theory is that the reason that that's the reason they came up with uh, Jim Crow, because there were populist movements throughout the South, including whites and blacks. So uh, the establishment made a deal with the whites, you know, we'll give you some crumbs, a little more crumbs than blacks, a lot more crumbs, I guess. And, uh, you know, uh, that's how the deal ran. And if you want to see a good movie about that, although mm-hmm. the uh, topic is buried, The Great Debaters, that's oh, what that's yeah. about. Where Mel- Melvin Tolson, they don't even, they hardly mention the fact that he was a great poet in that movie. But they do touch upon the fact that there was an alliance between are black and white farmers, so they had to crush that. But that happened in New Orleans, uh, mm-hmm. in 1906, and I wrote a play about it, which is mm-hmm. going to be published next year, called "Life Among the Aryans," and uh, it was performed at the uh, New Eureka Poets Cafe. 
So it's easy for me to get played in New York than out here, see, because I don't want to go into it. But you saw what Carol Perloff said, didn't, didn't you? No, uh-uh. Uh, was it the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco? Oh, yeah, I know who she is. No, what is she Yeah, she's been, she's being sued by a black uh, a person who's uh, on the, among their personnel there. And he said that she said that her people are not interested in plays by black people. That's sort of like the mentality out here. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's sort of like the mentality out here. Mm. It was in Chronicle. You can look it up. Just look up. Uh, yeah. I will. Because the, the gentleman, you interview him because he's suing her okay. in American Conservative yeah. Theater. But that's what she said. She he, said she don't do no black plays because her people are not interested in no black plays. Hmm. <laughs> wow, wow. Wow. We want to welcome um, to the air uh, Dr. Glenn Paris. Hi. Good morning. How are you? Hi, Wanda. Happy, happy uh, New Year's. Happy New Year to you, too. Yeah, you, you, hear, you hear our, our sage, you know, um, Brother Reed, you know, like <laughs> oh, yes. dropping wisdom oh, yes. here. <laughs> dropping the wisdom. Uh, always love to hear him uh, speak and, and uh, put things in historic uh, perspective. Right, yeah. Really enjoyed you as um as moderator for the Afrofuturism um uh, uh three part series that, that um you know the Kim facilitated, Kim McMillan, Doctor Kim McMillan oh, I, I, facilitated. I, I you were like so, so brilliant. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, I can't claim the moderator's seat. <laughs> Some smart smarter people than me did that, but um I really did enjoy the um uh that whole series. Um, just to be in such company uh, was an honor for me, and uh, I, I just enjoyed participating. Right, yeah, yeah. And um, you are going to be a part of this poetry jam, uh, which yeah. is going to be really cool, the Afrofuturist edition. And you've got some things happening. You know, you've written a short story that's going to be a part of this collection um, on um, yeah, uh, Wakanda. Yeah, there are a couple of things kind of popping for me right now. So, um, uh, you know, no one no one expected to lose Chadwick Boseman uh, last yeah. August. Uh, that, that's truly tragic. Um, but uh, we had um, a collection in the works uh, from uh, 2019, early 2019, um, to develop a, um, an anthology of short stories about Wakanda and Black Panther. Um, that has since been uh, dedicated to the great Chadwick Boseman. Um, Jesse Holland is the uh, editor. Uh, we've got some fantastic uh, African-American and African writers contributing to that. Not only just um, African-American writers of popular um, literature and, and, um, and, and such, but the great um, Nikki Giovanni uh, has a contribution to that as well before you socks off. Um, mm. It's. I, I am shocked uh, that I was <laughs> included in this in this uh, anthology. But I have to thank um, uh, Professor Jesse Holland for um, including me. Uh, but we're looking forward to that coming out uh, next month in um, mm-hmm. during uh, Black History Month. Uh, I, think, I thought the timing was excellent. Right. Yes. Yes. And um, both you and. Um and uh, Mr. Reed Ishmael um, are are New Yorkers. Uh, you were born and raised there, and um, and I was just wondering um, 
if you want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, being a physician and being, um, you know, a writer. Um, Afrofuturism, I think it could kind of lend itself to, um, you know, to your medical expertise. Um, <laughs> um, but also um, I hear uh, Kim told me that you were mentored by Octavia Butler, and I'm just rereading her her books again. And I, I read, uh, first I read Parable of the Sower, because um, that's like my Bible one, and I was like, I just love it. And so now I'm, I'm almost finished with um, Parable of the Talents. And so anyway, I just want to say to you, God has changed, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. That is the one thing that is guaranteed in life, change. Mm-hmm. Yes. Nothing stays the same. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I met Octavia, Octavia Butler in uh, 1996, um, and I was astounded. Uh, you know, I love her work, um, and it wasn't until I got to um, the uh, Black Arts Festival that year that um, uh, I learned that there were only a handful of recognized uh, black science fiction writers. Uh, now, of course, there are more. They just weren't classified as uh, science fiction writers. They've written speculative fiction with cosmic uh, consequences, but they weren't classified as um, science fiction. So um, it, it was just astounding that they were just so few. But she was just so brilliant, um, just the subtlety of her her um, observations, uh, the depth of her questions, and you know, she, she her genius. If if I if I can uh, um, uh, divert for a minute, her genius was in packing a small sentence with so much. That was the incredible thing about Octavia Butler. I mean, you know, when when she she just gave you these little short questions, these little short. Sometimes a question could only be a single word, uh, and and. You know, it just packed such a punch. You'd have to think about it for a while before you formulate an answer. Um, and uh, she was she was generous as well. Um, I, I wish that I had had more contact with her than I did. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then I was just thinking, you know, about her her last novel, um, Fledgling, and and you've got mm-hmm. this. Um, uh, you've got a lot of books. Um, you know, science fiction, fantasy, historical fiction. Yeah. Um, but you're the author of Renaissance of Aspirin, the first in the Jack yeah. Wheaton mystery series, and you've got Unbitten, a vampire dream. And I was thinking about Unbitten, a vampire being mm-hmm. dream. It was like, like what is it about you know, sort of like Tanner Reeve Do and Octavia Butler and um, uh, yourself and um, and I'm drawing a blank on her name, but a wonderful poet here, Ishmael. You might know her name. Um, she she's here and and she wrote about a vampire um uh young young woman in in New Orleans and I'm sorry Anne Rice No 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 African American no. and she's here in San Francisco uh-huh um, okay. Yeah and 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 she was the first uh I she I wanted to read her book so badly that cuz I'm kind of afraid of vampires even you know once <laughs> written by people of African descent, yeah. but I oh Jewel Gomez, you know Jewel Gomez is um the it's set in oh, a brothel no. and it's I it's a really great though. oh yeah it's 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 kind of classic they reissued it I think it was like the 20th anniversary of it and um oh. and the 
Oprah Bush women, um, they they took the book and they made it into, um, I don't know if you would call it an opera or a musical, but yeah, and they performed it at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco. And it was like awesome. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah. but I just sort of see within within this particular character, you know, the the vampire character, you know, the living forever, you know, there's immortality uh, yeah. there. Um, yeah. It it sounded like jive for me, like oh, I kind of like see why our experiences as people of African descent, particularly in this hemisphere, work so well, you know, in that particular kind of story. Um, yeah, but I wanted to ask you about yours, Unbidden <laughs> Vampire. Sure. sure. So, um, you know, it's interesting. Um, what the, one of the themes that you see in, in vampire lore is everybody wants to live forever until they have mm-hmm. to. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's a very attractive thought to have the powers of a vampire, but there's so, so many things that um, are unique to the living that you lose. Um, my story, Unbitten, is about a, um, a woman who was uh, made into a vampire in the, uh, in the 1700s. And um, she never quite embraced uh, the whole vampire um, lifestyle. Uh, and as you find out later on in the story, there's a medical reason why she didn't. And it leaves the door slightly cracked for her to come back to the human race. Um, and uh, she does it with the help of her descendant. Um, so it's an interesting book. And, and you know, as, as a physician, uh, some of my knowledge and background inform uh, directions that I can take my writing. And I do that in, mm-hmm. I guess, all my writing to one degree or another. Um, but uh, this one was a fun one to write. And uh, I think people learn a little bit about uh, certain diseases and uh, their historical impact. Um, the historical impact of diseases can be uh, uh, very, very interesting. Uh, they sound dry, but they, they can be very interesting, as, as I hope, they, hope it is in Unbitten. Um, the Renaissance of Aspirin, as you mentioned earlier, is a medical uh, murder mystery. Um, and I like that one. It hinges on a young African-American um, uh, medical scientist. <clears throat> She's the youngest member of a team that develops a, a cure for a very painful condition. It's actually a real condition called fibromyalgia. But um, what she discovers is a flaw in this, um, this multi-billion dollar formula before it goes to the FDA and, and it um, puts her life in danger. And she's being chased through this by um, assassins uh, posing as uh, drug reps. Uh, and it involves a guy from New Orleans who, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of got things going on. Um, but it was it's a fun kind of story. It's a chase story. It, it has the flavor of the firm or... Uh, the Da Vinci Code or, or something along those lines. Um, probably the, the closest um, uh, plot story to that would be uh, John Grisham's The uh, Pelican Briefs. But um, yeah, that was a fun uh, story to write. I've written a sequel to that. And um, actually, uh, you know, I've got a first draft of a, um, of a script to that. Hmm. But, you know, um, it's interesting. When I, I go around to, um, to uh, different... Um, panels and conferences, you know, uh, one of the things I get, and I get it mostly from, from uh, white uh, readers, is, they, you know, she sounds like she's a little overqualified. You know, she's an MD and a PhD, uh, you know, at the age of 25. At, at the, it stretches belief a little bit. And this is why. I know dozens of uh, MD, PhDs, African-American women. 
Um, you know, I, I write about what I see. You know, there, there's nothing that over the top with the characters that I write. Um, you know, I, I deal with a very diverse um, population of, of patients, of colleagues. Um, I've known them for years. Uh, I, I mentioned that comment, and I always bring it up. Uh, a, um, a professor of rheumatology in, at NYU, happens to be African-American, MD-PhD. Uh, she's recognized as an international genius when it comes to rheumatology. I mentioned this, and, and her only response was a, a one-syllable, huh, really. <laughs> but um, it, it, it was a fun story to write, and um, you know, I, I, it, it seems to be uh, a really fast read. I, you know, a lot of um, readers have uh, called me back and they said, you know, I was a little daunted by a 400-page book, but, you know, I, I read it in a weekend. Um, and, you know, you got to put something else out there. So, uh, you know, that was, that was fun to, to write. But in terms of Afrofuturism, um, uh, my favorite book, of course, is gotta be, uh, that I've written is Dragon's Air. Uh, that's going to be republished by uh, Outland Entertainment, um, this spring, and okay. that it's a it's a subtle take on Afrofuturism. Um, it's it's really about imperialism, caste, and uh, you know hatred is one thing, but you know when when it comes to suffering, indifference is even worse. Uh, and you know these these people are superior; they are responsible for um, a disaster that almost cost the life of every living thing on Earth at one point 65 million years ago, and uh, they come back and they're indifferent to what has grown up in, in the ruin that they left behind. Um, and it mirrors a lot of um, the people in power in this day and age in the real world. And it sort of holds up a mirror to some of the, the cruelest or most indifferent attitudes towards Native peoples and um, uh, uh, the African uh, diaspora uh, descendants. Um, and it, it sort of puts everybody in the same bucket. It doesn't separate, um, you know, black from white, yellow from brown, and, or anything like that. But it puts all of us humans in one bucket as we might be seen by, by a um, superior um, uh, group of people uh, that just happen to look like us. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I uh, Is- Ismail um, shared um, something from his uh, latest collection with us, a poem, and I was wondering if you'd like to share something um, before, um, um, you know, I invite uh, Ismail um, back into the conversation. But before that, Ismail, do you have anything you'd like to um, respond to? You know that that Glenn um, just shared um yeah well uh you know um black americans were doing speculative fiction about 100 years or 200 years before somebody came up with a term a critical term afrofuturism so these uh trends come and go <laughs> i've seen a lot of revolutions and, uh i'm doing uh, uh the introduction to john o'killens Unpublished oh. uh, novel, lost novel called uh, The Minister Primarily. It's 400 pages long, tour de force. Ah. And he mm. talks about the South as being a place where you get that kind of that, that kind of fiction. 
and uh, he seems to uh, imply that when black people left uh, the South, they left Africa. And that, uh, you know, uh, South is more Africa-like than, than you know, the, what happened with the migration to Chicago and New York and other places. I grew up in Buffalo, incidentally. So, uh, yeah, so uh, you know, I wrote an Afrofuturist novel in 1969. It's still in print. <laughs> it's called The Freelance Fall Bearers. And uh, Jose Palmer, the science fiction writer, uh-huh. nominated for the Nebula Award. So uh, these these trends come and go. I think the idea is to write. And my one of my missions uh, since uh, at least 1980, when we started these foundations, before Columbus Foundation, which does the American Book Awards, is to end tokenism. Because mm-hmm. what I've discovered as a somebody who reads a lot of black fiction is that tokens overshadow movements, or a, a token can overshadow a generation. For example, there are a lot of people who wrote as well. I, people get, you know, they get shocked when I say it. A lot of people wrote, wrote better as well as Baldwin did. He just happened to have powerful uh, backers. Like one of the contemporaries of Baldwin was uh, Louise Merriweather, who's now trying to raise money for round-the-clock uh, care. She's on GoFundMe. Louise Merriweather, oh, she wrote wow. a, she wrote a classic called "Daddy Was a Number Runner," a classic yeah, about yeah. Harlem. Takes mm-hmm. more risks than uh, go tell on the mountain. I don't want to pit these two against each other, but it takes more risks, and you can see why the, the establishment would probably uh, deny her recognition. But uh, there are a lot of people who are contemporaries who got sort of like blotted out because the people who uh, uh, create tokens who are not black. Decided on one or two, <clears throat> and that's what I wow. encountered when when I asked about how many African American science fiction writers there were back in 1995. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, someone who is um, supposedly a science fiction aficionado uh, says there are only three. So I mm-hmm. said, well, it can't be three. I said, it, it's got to be you know maybe um, twenty or thirty, but it can't be just mm-hmm. three. He says, yeah, it's right. just three. You know, right. but again, I'm learning about yours. I learned about, um, you know, Walter Mosley writing um, science fiction. Um, Samuel Delaney. Know, Samuel uh, Delaney. Samuel Delaney. I knew about. He was one of the three. And um, Amiri Baraka. Amiri Baraka wrote a science fiction. Uh, Amiri Baraka wrote um, uh, um, science fiction um, uh, short story. And um, I know I saw the one that he, he um, contributed to Dark Matters. Uh, and William Melvin Kelly. William Melvin Kelly wrote uh, uh, Afro Futures. Yeah, um, I mean, like them. this is this needs to be brought out different drummer. because this is not recognized in in white mainstream science fiction literature, and this is science fiction, and it's science fiction independent of whether it uh, it pertains to African American lifestyles or not. The the fact that it is conceived by uh, an African American or African or Afro um, uh, European, whatever it is. Uh, that kind of mind, it brings along the baggage that comes with that. Uh, and and that that baggage shapes the story. It shapes the words. It shapes well, a lot of that has to do with the collapse of the black press. Yes. Because, yes. because a number of writers got their start with the black press. For example, uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar had a newspaper, wrote for a newspaper, yeah. the Tatler, Dayton, Ohio. Mike Hughes, uh, his simple theories... 
appeared in uh, the black press, George Schuyler, a number of uh, you know writers began. With, and so when the black press collapsed because of integration, you know, we don't get uh, another point of view about trends in black literature. Now, someone, someone needs to write an article just citing some of these um, these stories, the titles, um, the years, and maybe just a, a, a single sentence about um, uh, the content, what it's about. Uh, because a lot of people don't know about these. I'm listening to you, and, and I'm just I'm, I'm making notes while I'm listening to you. <laughs> well, I'm 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 I'm, cur- I'm, I'm, I'm currently I'm currently, I'm currently I'm currently having a dialogue with powerful uh, trendsetters in the country, the New York Times Book Review, the New Yorker, uh-huh. and I'm try I'm trying to ask them why I've never seen the byline of a black critic, you know, critics who've studied. Black literature all their lives, like Jerry uh-huh. Ward or Mary Emma Graham or uh, mm-hmm. Trudia Harris or uh, you know Brenda Green, whole bunch of them. Yeah, and they and, have no answers. Mm-hmm. What they do is they they get people to review black literature who have the slightest idea what it's all about. For example, I think there are two two trends. One is Columbusing, like they discovered a writer nobody knew about. Recently, in the New York Times, they said people have forgotten Ann Spencer. I mean. Black people, you know, people have forgotten William Melvin Kelly, you know, a lost, uh, a lost literary giant, somebody said. Now I try to tell these people, you have to go, why don't you guys bring black critics out of the Negro Leagues? You understand? Yeah. I mean, they, can accept, they can accept some black writers, fiction writers, but why, black, why not black critics? Because black critics can put black literature in the context of a tradition. Exactly. Like, for example, uh, Eleanor Trailer connected, say, a novel. She she did a review of a novel by, for us, Conch Magazine, and she connected it to 19th century black literature. Mm -hmm. What they tend to do is to give black writers a white master. For example, Wanda Coleman. I published Wanda Coleman. I knew Wanda Coleman. So some guy in New Yorker says, well, she has something to do with Whitman. She ain't got nothing to do with Whitman. So those are the trends. That's how they review literature. Well, you know, the other thing um, that that's done um, is the only way they seem to be able to contextualize um, uh, literature is it's like X plus Y. So, and I, I just did it when I when I talked about my novel. It's it's like um, the Pelican Briefs. You know, mm-hmm. our, a lot of times our our stuff is. You know, as I said before, it is shaped and informed by our experience and our background, and it's mm-hmm. not like anything that has been popular before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and and uh, it's you know, if you're looking for new um, uh, fodder for uh, streaming, for movies, for novels, get something that's really new, and let's not mm-hmm. not let's not continue to rehash uh, ancient Greek um, uh, epic poetry. Um, mm-hmm. Let's not uh, continue to just uh, reformulate Shakespeare's uh, plays, mm-hmm. uh, Charles Dickens. Come on, let's get something that's really new. There's nothing wrong yeah. with all those things. And I love um, new spins on old stuff. But let's get right. some new right. stuff that's fresh that no one has read right. before, and it's different, mm-hmm. and anybody can relate to it. Yeah. Um do you want to uh, share something um, from you know, your I, you know, Wanda, uh, from your I, Wanda, I got to yes. go. 
Wanda, I got oh. an appointment. I got to go because, uh, okay. you know, I said I thought it was going to be 45 minutes. But anyway, uh, yes. I just want to say that, that I'm glad to to, uh, to hear, uh, you know, that uh, Glenn is writing and sounds very fascinating, his work. And I just wanted to tell them one of the great innovators uh, of 20th century poetry was also a doctor, a physician. <laughs> his name was William Carlos Williams. William Carlos Williams. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Uh, thank, you. thank you, Ishmael. Thanks for joining us. Look forward to seeing you Thursday at the uh, sure. event at the Oakland Public okay. Library, at the, at the San Francisco Main Library with so Kim Shaw. Take care now. All right, you too. Bye. Bye. <laughs> yeah, Kim, Kim sent me uh, a, um, a text, and she said that Ishmael was considered one of the early pioneers of Afrofuturism, but he is an early yeah. pioneer of a lot because he is, like, so... He just has such a great breadth of of, of the literature, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just like dropping all this stuff, like so cool, <laughs> and it's so interesting. Yeah, how you both, you know, in New York, and you went to school in Buffalo. He's he's from Buffalo. Um, yeah, right. And uh, yeah. Chip Delaney also um, taught mm-hmm. literature in Buffalo. Oh, really? There are a lot of connections. <laughs> a lot of connections. Yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking about your whole, you know, your 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 um your scientific field of um rum um rheumatology, is that how you pronounce it? Um no, rheumatology. Rheumatology, yeah, and it's sort of looking mm-hmm. at the immune system, right? Um Yeah. And and I'm just thinking about people of African descent, you know, they we talk about sort of the kind of um uh, medical um issues that come up you know, in in our in our particular community, you know, like heart disease and diabetes and diabetes, of course. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So you know, it's very interesting. Um, I was looking at a uh, map of incidents of lupus um, mm-hmm. that had been put out mm-hmm. by um, CDC in conjunction with um, the World Health Organization, uh, and it showed. Um, where uh, there are hot spots in lupus in Germany, in London, in Spain, uh, in France, and there are a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, descendants of the African diaspora in those areas. Of course, all of the United States, the Caribbean, South America, uh, lupus is very, very common in the Latino community as well. But the continent of Africa is all dark. This is, wait a minute, how can... There be no lupus or very little lupus on the continent when all of the the, um, the descendants of the diaspora have this spike in incidence of lupus. And mm-hmm. I know um, uh, rheumatologists from uh, from Africa, from West Africa, from East Africa. They say, no, there's lupus there. It's just not being registered. It's not being recognized. Not being treated until the modern era. So a lot of these maps that are obsolete or out of date don't show it. Um, but there are all kinds of questions uh, that I have, medical questions that I have uh, centering around lupus, treatment for lupus, and uh, the interface with sickle cell anemia. Um, you know, there, there's you know, all these diseases sort of play around the same uh, maypole, if you will, and, and no one has made, you know, no one's connected the dots yet on how they, they relate to one another. But I believe that there is there is some kind of uh, a connection there. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's all connected to, 
you know, racism and white supremacy, I think it's all connected to, um, you know, sort of living in this cesspool, you know, um, you know, whether that's America, whether that's, you know, because of enslavement of our ancestors and we're mm-hmm. the descendants and, and how did we have to adapt, you know, genetically to be able to like mm-hmm. still be here right now, you know, in that transatlantic journey and then living on the and working and dying, you know, I mean tortured on these plantations. Or, you know, being under house arrest, um, and the people bringing the germs to you, you know, and, and you know, in Africa, right? <laughs> you know, under colonialism, which was a similar kind of system, it's just, you know, people were killed and maimed and, you know, under house arrest in their own on their own land. So it you know, it, it all shows up in our bodies as you know, you know, from the work you do. You know, this stuff can't just happen <laughs> and then not show up. So one one of the things is that you evolve to to fit your environment. So yeah. if you come from West Africa or North Africa, or East Africa or South Africa, um, you know you, there there are certain indigenous um, organisms, microorganisms, microorganisms that live there, and you you live in harmony with them. When you are whipped mm-hmm. from that and transplanted um, tens of thousands of miles or thousands of miles away, and 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 brought in a new environment with new organisms that your body has to cope with, it's amazing that we survived at all. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, um, the indigenous um, uh, population of uh, the North South American continent was devastated by uh, diseases that came from Europe uh, that they had never seen before. Uh, the same as this um, coronavirus is, is devastating the world population now, a novel virus one that the human race has never seen before. This is what it can do when you have an unprepared immune system. And this is what happened when we brought a lot of our folks, not we, but a lot of our folks were taken and transported to the new world. You know, we were just dropped in a place where uh, our immune systems were facing uh, diseases that had never been seen before. And uh, there was no medical care. You know, if you if you fell, you got the whip. You didn't get a, a shot. You didn't get a, a you know you got a splash of the whip or or uh, you know a crack with a stick. So the fact that we we survived as well as we did is a tribute to you know our, our um, endurance and um, uh, you know it's it's something that should be celebrated and and examined. I mean you know if 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 you can trans because we went to. <clears throat> We, we took a trip last year to, or, or in 2019 to uh, Senegal, and, mm. you know, we had to be very careful about, you know, the water we drank and the food that we ate um, because our, our systems weren't accustomed to, you know, some of those microorganisms anymore. But, you know, the people who lived there, they had no problems with it. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm always very proud of it. You know, when I, when I stepped off the plane, you know, and they, they looked at my passport and they looked up at me, you know, there was this quizzical uh, look on their faces, you know, that, like, you're American, but you look like us. Uh, you know, I, I got a lot of that. I got a lot of that, that you know, very dark skin. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I took it as a point of pride that um, I looked like I belong in this sea of people mm-hmm. who look like me. Um, uh, but... Um, you know, the fact that we had to prepare and we had to be cautious about what we ate and what we drank um, mm-hmm. because, you know, we had lost a lot of that uh, immunity and we lost a lot of that uh, microbiome that lives in our guts uh, that is unique to us. 
So, mm-hmm. but the wow. fact that we we survived that without any preparation uh, is is a real testament to uh, our fortitude. Mhm. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think it's our spiritual fortitude as well. Um, you know, the unseen yeah. Yeah. and what we carry. Um, you know, in our in our in our DNA memory. You know, our soul. Yeah. You know, that yeah. doesn't get. You know, that doesn't die. You know, it's just like it moves it, with us. Yeah. You know, and our I, ancestors. I talking, you know. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You know, uh, there was one uh, very busy panel that we had in November, I think, uh, where um, we were talking about the difference between African futurism and Afrofuturism. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, the position Oh, yeah, I remember that. African, I remember that question. Yeah, yeah. the African writers, you know, they, they make the comment that, you know, um, African Americans tend to, you know, uh, twist things and take it from a purely American perspective. And there's a mm-hmm. difference between, you know, um, indigenous African writers and what they put into their story and what we put in. We have very little history. But, and I didn't get a chance to finish this on that on that panel, but um, even though we were ripped from the continent, separated from those that we knew, um, uh, suppressed in terms of educating our young on the culture, the history, the language, uh, the cooking, the music, all, all those aspects of life, even though those things were suppressed and removed from us, we were given a new religion, uh, we were given a new language, um, mm-hmm. language is, uh, in spite of all of that, something remains that still connects us to all the cultures of West Africa. And, and you know, you can listen to uh, music by African Americans for the past 200 years, and there's still, there's still something in common with the rhythms and the music and the instrumentation and the voices that you hear back on the continent in multiple cultures. The, the mm-hmm. cooking, we went there, and one of the, the, the ubiquitous things that you saw everywhere is this stewed chicken and rice dish. And this was the same chicken and rice dish that nailed me when I was dating my wife. She made this dish of stewed chicken and rice, and, and you know, the, the, the way to immense uh, part is through his stomach, went right in for that. <laughs> okay. So... So, I, you know, I, I smiled at my wife when we sat down to eat, and she looked at me and rolled her eyes, and she says, yeah, I know. <laughs> but, um, you know, so there's got to be some – that wasn't taught, per se. There was no books. There was nothing written down. And, and uh, communication was, was discouraged. Families were separated. So children who didn't have the benefit of their parents to raise them still, still came up with the same – Concepts, same ideas, same musical. So there is something, and if it's in the DNA, if it's in the ether somewhere, if there's some kind of spiritual astral projection uh, connection uh, between us and the continent, there's some kind of umbilical cord that still connects us and feeds us a lot of that cultural um, uh, history and baggage uh, somehow. Uh, and that needs to be strengthened. That needs to be explored. We touched on it in the movie The Black Panther. You know, uh, uh, thank God Ryan Coogler and, and uh, the cast that he put together and the work of uh, Chadwick Boseman and um, uh, Michael B. Jordan. That You know, that was a work of art, and uh, I don't know what they're going to do about um, doing the sequels, but, you know, they, they can't let that wither on the vine. Um, it was it was too good. 
Right, yeah. You know, when you were talking about, um, you know, sort of the legacy, you know, that is a through line um, with people of African descent, you know, um, whether, you know, we're in the diaspora or, or our ancestors and, and, and their descendants are, are, you know, never left the continent, or we're in different parts of the diaspora, but we're still connected. You know, we're here in the United yeah. States, but, that, you know, we have we have connections with our, our folk in the Caribbean. We have, you know, the folks mm-hmm. in and South America and the folks mm-hmm. in, in Europe and elsewhere, um, you know, even even like, you know, South Asia and right. um, and right. also in, yeah. you know, South, in New South Zealand. South I mean, those are all black people, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and and so I'm just I just wanted to mention you probably know him, um, Dr. Uh, Ibrahima uh, Sek, who um, uh-huh. I met when uh-huh. I when I went to my first my first uh, journey to the motherland was to Senegal as well. I went to Rufisk and because yeah. I was invited yeah. there um by um the uh the daughter of um Mom Fatou Sek. Um uh she's also an ancestor now, um Mom uh Ulimata uh Young. And I met them in San Francisco, she and her son, um Mohamedou Nyang and they were a part of a, a workshop panel Looking at Indigenous Healing, that was hosted by the um, uh, the Association of African American Psychologists (ABPsy), and and it was uh, you know they were founded here um, in in Oakland, and and so anyway the the conference was actually here, so it was easy to get to because I didn't have to travel. Um, but he actually uh, wrote a book about looking at the foodways, and he when Hurricane Katrina happened, he was in New Orleans, and they were looking mm-hmm. at you know the as a part of Louisiana, you know, sort of mm-hmm. harvesting and uh, and the fish, you know, the food. Because, like, you know, when you went to Senegal, you probably noticed the gumbo, right? I was like, oh, oh yeah. wow, I know this food. So, so Creole cuisine. Oh, okay, well, so am I. Yeah, so, oh, okay. so you know, you, you see the similar, and also the music. The music uh-huh. is similar, well, too, yeah. like, um, yeah. And you probably know um, our, our brother, um, um ah uh, um he is a famous Senegalese musician. Uh, um and uh gosh, I just saw a movie by him. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um uh Neo. Say it again? What Neo. Yeah, he's he's I don't think he's um he's not Senegalese he No is... No, his name's not no not Neo. Not not, not Neo. that person. Um mm okay. No. And do um let's see, um uh, gosh, I almost had it. Um, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll find it. I'll tell you. But but yeah. But he um, he uh, used to endure. Used to endure. Did a, a movie, um, sort of trace looking at the diaspora, and and he so he he was in New Orleans, um, and and uh, and our brother who who made his transition, um, real famous drummer, um, who was the drummer for um, uh, Ahmad Jamal. He um, he was a part of this project, and they they traveled the the diaspora, and and he traveled, and he was like making this document showing that we're still connected. And then they performed at Gory Island at the theater there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so cool. So I just wanted to like share that with you. What you're saying is like, yeah, it's it's happening. It needs to happen more showing these ties and these connections that we still have with one another. Akon is the one I was I was thinking of. Akon. 
Oh, Akon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. was a part of. I yeah, I know him. He's younger. Uh, Yusu Endor um, is uh, like he is. He's a museum. <laughs> he is just like, oh my god. Yeah, yeah. That movie, that film was just like phenomenal. It was a part of the um, uh, the African Diaspora um, Film Festival, which is actually having mm-hmm. a. Um, a reprise of all of its highlights. I'll, I'll send you a link to that because it's going to be uh, next week. As well. mm-hmm. sure, yeah. Please, please. Do you want to share something uh, of your of your your vast and varied, you know, uh, <laughs> canon? You know, your your work. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, um, uh, on an earlier show, I, I read um, a uh, romantic poem between um, two of the main characters. Uh, that mm-hmm. kind of their, their their character, but there's there's one that um, uh, I wanted to read that sort of um, encapsulates the the um, the uh, the nature of these people that I described uh, who left the earth 65 million years ago, and this is typical mm-hmm. of of an imperial um, society that's built its its power and wealth on the backs of of others. Um, and I call this one uh, the seat of power. So if I may uh, read that. Oh, certainly. Oh, certainly. Mm-hmm. Sure. So the seat of power. Teast is a world fashioned from a giant, grass giant, uh, that orbits the seat of power of the equal realm. It's polar caps crowned by the forest of feeling. A symbol of two teardrops eternally chasing round the circle in perfect balance. The mirage swirls twin streams of fire and water like strands of our very DNA. Cast aside skyward towards the future, yet rooted in our past. The alone, the river of life and fate. For three hours of every seven years, the contrasting tears come to life as teeth eclipses the distant red giant. The blood star, unleashed by its fiery glow, the tillage illusion dances for all to see. A spectral dragon in fetal position, the cool green upper arc spread as an oversized wing. The lower arc issues a breath of crimson backwards, rendering the far wing invisible. This world, an elaborate monument to Ethelu hubris, an apparition endowed with a mystique, Worshipped as a god, and you know that that kind of thing is what people do when uh, you know they they've got empires that can be built by uh, people in servitude, um, and they've got wealth that is um, is uh, harvested from uh, other people's lands. Um, you know, this is what you can do when you have that kind of wealth. You know, you can build. Uh, pyramids and sphinxes, you can build uh, statues of liberty, you can build colossus uh, statues, you can build Taj Mahal, you know, you you can build all kinds of things. These people, um, you know, have built a giant world that that has been sculpted uh, to honor and and, um, exemplify their their, uh, accomplishments. And again, on the backs or, um, you know, over the graves of, you know, those they've left behind. And it's a mirror of our culture and our uh, decisions and some of our values of, um, you know, uh, ignoring what you've taken from those who need 
and you've thrown away on frivolous things like uh, monuments or uh, statues or um, you know uh, palaces that go on forever and ever and ever. Um, you know the, these things um, are are fine. There's no great sin in them uh, specifically, but when they're surrounded by people who are starving, uh, people who are, are uh, suffering, people who are wasting, people who are disrespected, you know they they have no value. Right. That's so true. Yeah. And I was just wondering, um, how does it feel when the future is getting closer and closer to now? Um, I'm thinking, you know, as I mentioned that I'm reading Octavia Butler's um, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the, of the Talents, and and we're in, like, it's like 2024. Uh-huh. Like that's, that's when, that's when, that's the year that... Um, Oya uh, Olamina um, is is you know writing her you know coming to to her you know earth seed and you know establishing acorn and and all this stuff is happening and and then and then now in the parable of the talents you know they've got this demigod on you know as president that's trying to bring back Christian values and everything is like there's there's no order. You know, people are like setting up and doing what they want, and we see what happens. You know, we have this this coup d'état that nobody's calling a coup d'état. You know, unsuccessful um, on Monday, and everyone said, "No, no, it wasn't that." Yes, it was. Well, it absolutely just, it, was. It, 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 it totally, totally was. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the again, I, I, I point out the genius of of, um, of Octavia Butler and and Samuel Delaney as, as well. If you read some of his yeah. work, um, you know, he wrote about the internet back in 1984, before there was an Internet. Um, and he wow. got so many things right. I mean, he almost described Google in 1984. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, but but um, Octavia Butler's um, genius, as I said, science fiction often has a, a shelf life. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can make things up in science fiction. I, I have an advantage because I do have a science background. But... Um, you know, if, if you don't, you still can write fantastic science fiction if you just do a little research. But science fiction often has a shelf life as we um, disprove or um, or show a different uh, outcome for some of the things that we've made up. Um, you know, we have flip phones like, um, you know, the Star Trek communicators, but we don't have transporters and we don't have warp speed. But warp speed is, you know, uh, it's theoretically possible. So, um, you know, there are certain things that, you know, are not going to uh, likely, you know, I can't say for sure, but are likely not going to be, uh, you know, um, realistic in the future. But there are other things that not only are, are realistic, but things that we thought were futuristic are now history. Um, you know, there are things that we've, we've had now for years or decades that, um, you know, science fiction predicted we wouldn't get for hundreds of years. So uh, when um, Octavia Butler comes up with stories that uh, still hold today, and you're 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 sitting at the edge of your seat, waiting with bated breath. You know what she said is it it looks like it's shaping up just like she said, and in in a year or two years or four years, you know uh, her story begins. You know what's going to happen, and and you're reading it thinking, oh my God, this could really happen. That's great science fiction literature. That is something that worth that is worth preserving. Uh, and and that should be shared with the world. That's not just a uh, African American 
uh, science fiction story. That is a human science fiction story, and mm-hmm. anybody can appreciate it and and, um, and enjoy it and grow from it. Mm. Right. Yeah. I was just wondering, like in your own writing, like what you shared. Um, have you seen some of your 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 work? Um, you know, sort of like it's getting closer and closer, and like, oh, we're here now. Yeah. <laughs> what you wrote um, in the past? Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, Dragon's Air has been something that I've sort of been working through for 25 years, and uh, mm-hmm. some of those things are actually um, tools that we use right now in um, mm-hmm. in uh, biomedical science and in medicine. Um, you know some of the um, uh, some of the, the new vaccines for uh, COVID-19 are mRNA um, uh, vaccination, and you know the, the brilliance of that technology um, is is something that I sort of touched on um, back in the day. Um, the uh, PCRs and some of the um, the other um, uh, um, things that I came up with. Some of those things are close. And some of those mm-hmm. things we will probably never have or never be able to prove. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is um, look at the holes in our scientific knowledge and build a story around the hole, what we don't know and what we think that we can't learn because we can't, um, we can't fathom those kinds of things. What happens inside of a black hole? Uh, what happens when you're um, uh, um, you know, 10 light years or 100 light years from Earth, you know, things that we, we're not likely to uh, be able to ascertain in the foreseeable future. That's a fun thing to write about. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> that is really cool because I was just thinking um, how, um, I was gonna, you know, I was thinking that perhaps you could put, um, just as we have coded language, um and and we put codes in different kinds of things, you know, from from quilts mm-hmm. to songs and things like that. I'm thinking you could put codes, you know, in in the in the writing, and it sounds like you're doing mm-hmm. that. And 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 we know that is for us, and we'll see it. And maybe someone else might like not see it, like Ishmael was talking about how if you have people writing about literature who are not the direct audience then the people that are writing about the literature will miss, you know, the important stuff because yeah. it's not for them, you know, yeah, so they won't see it. Right. If you have a, if you have a critic who, who can only speak Latin and he has to critique mm-hmm. a Greek uh, poem, you know, he's going he's gonna to shrug and say, you know, you know, to me, you know, you know no matter what language it is, you know, it's, I don't understand it, so I really can't uh, discuss it. And and that's what a lot of mainstream critics are facing when they look at African American literature. You know, they look at certain things they want to change them because they think they're mistakes. They, you know, a lot of times, you know, sometimes there are um, you know typos or grammatical mistakes, but a lot of things are reflections of our culture, of our um, our um, historical baggage. That's not a mistake. We're re- this is what we're really trying to say. And and you get um, mainstream editors who, who want to change a lot of those things. Um, and you know, once once you have a little bit of um, experience, you know, you can you can sort of uh, stand your ground and say, no, I, you know, that's not a mistake. I meant to say that. This is what it means. And if you get somebody who's open-minded, you know, they're gonna you know um, follow you and give you a little room to work, give you a little creative room. 
Um, but when you become an Octavia Butler, a Samuel Delaney, Samuel R. Delaney, um, uh, a, a Walter Mosley, um, you know, Ryan Coogler, you know, you, you've got that creative space to work. Um, right. and, and we need to give young creatives that space to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when we have, you know, a Black Classics Press and we have other other presses, then then there is the space to work because, you know, we've got um you've got the support of the publishing industry, you know, yeah. that that's like looking for your, your voice and looking for your work. But then if mm-hmm. you have to rely on other to get it to be able to support mm-hmm. your work then like you said, you know, yeah. we won't know exactly. we won't know all the things yeah. that's there. Right. Mm-hmm. They're, they're trying to they're trying to squeeze a square peg into a round hole. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, okay, we've got to trim it off here, we've got to trim it off here. It's like, no, get a square hole. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Just, right, find a right. square hole. You know, don't don't mm-hmm. push it into the round hole. Find a square hole. Right. And and I want to let our audience know that um, the uh, the work that you mentioned earlier, that you have a short story in this collection, Tales of Wakanda, yeah. Marvel's. Of Wakanda. Um, and, yeah. you know, we're, we're, still, we're still under a little bit of a um, – uh, a gag order, it's not really a gag order, but mm-hmm. um, uh, Marvel yeah. likes to play it very close to the vest. So I really can't tell you very much about my story or any of the other stories in the book. All I can say is that, that I think some of the other stories in the book are really, really good. My story mm-hmm. is uh, more historic Wakanda, um, mm-hmm. and it mirrors um, you know, T'Challa's story in, in some mm-hmm. respects, but it incorporates mm-hmm. elements of uh, specific history of the world uh, at the time that I, I wrote the book that I think anybody would recognize. And I pull a few strings together and, and tie them off, I think. Um, and I hope that um, that my readers uh, appreciate how I brought a few things together. And I, I hope it, number one, makes sense. And I hope that, uh, you know, we, we find it enjoyable. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to becoming uh, more uh, conversant in in your your body of work and have another conversation. But I wanted to let our audience know as well that uh, Tales of Wakanda, um, Marvel's tribute to Chadwick uh, Boseman, uh, is going to be released, scheduled for release February 2nd. And it's going to come out, I believe, um, it's going to have a a hard copy, but it's also going to have... a virtual, um, you know, um, yeah, version, you know, version, like a Kindle version, right, right. I think that's mm-hmm. going to be available first, and then, yeah. the, and then the uh, the hard copy comes next, so yeah. people can look for yeah. that. And and then I wanted to know about your um, your science fiction novel, Dragon's Air. You mentioned that is being um, re released. When can people look for that? Um, well, I'm, I'm in communications with my um, my editor. And uh, she is um, working on that. Uh, we're going to make a couple of little changes. There's still a few uh, copies out there, um, but they're they're very limited. Those are first editions, so those those are, are no longer being um, printed. Um, there there are some that are already out there in circulation, um, but I, I think those will dry up pretty quickly. Um, so there'll there'll be a few changes. Um, uh, you know, to the format of the story. I think the body of the story is not going to change much. Mm-hmm. But I think that their their um, publishing season is probably um, mid to late spring, so I suspect okay. it'll it'll be out then. Um, but you know, sometimes the publishers uh, kind of surprise you, and you know they they get things out faster than expected. 
we, we were thinking that Tales of Wakanda would be coming out sometime in, in June or, or September. But Jesse Holland, man, he, he, you know, he, he, was, he was some leader on this because he got everybody on the same track. He got it going. He got it finished. He got it done. Um, the artist in the marketing department did a beautiful um, cover uh, for this, and um, and they they got it out for uh, uh, Afro American History Week, Black History Week, a month rather. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I, I don't know when it's going to come out, but I, I suspect sometime this spring. But um, okay. you know, uh, I, I hope that um, everybody who reads it gets a chance to enjoy it, and, and uh, uh, I'd love to see it back from it. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure, and and I want to let people know that um, they could probably you know follow you on your website, uh, Glenn Paris um, Two Ns and Two Rs dot com, and then and then also your Facebook, um, your name uh, dot Fiction Writer. Um, again, yeah. Two Ns and Two Rs. <laughs> so that's two ways to be in touch. I'm sure you like drop information like yeah, it's coming out. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm told that I'm double troubles. I got two ends, two arms. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sounds excellent. Sounds excellent. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. I wonder if you you have anything else that you didn't get a chance to say or share. Um, no. Yeah. Um, I, I do have one other uh, short story that's out there. Um, oh, Called nice. uh, the Tooth Fairies. Uh, Tales of Oh uh, yeah, I saw that. Uh, yeah. And and that's been a, um, another anthology about um, you know offbeat fairy stories, uh, also mm. from uh, Outland Entertainment, um, mm. and uh, some really uh, interesting um, takes on uh, fairies and the fae community and, and such. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it'll, you know, I think it'll get you thinking. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. right, yeah. So that's out. So we can we can just look for that. We can find that. Because it's already published oh, yeah. and everything. Yeah. Oh, that should be cool. That should be cool. And I wanted to mention to you when you when you spoke about how you know what Ishmael was like dropping all this information earlier in our conversation. Um, just about you know some of the um, I never even heard anyone talk about James Baldwin's uh, contemporary and uh, Louise Merriweather. Like, oh my goodness! I mean, I didn't even know she was still with us, let alone you know having some trouble, you know, with funding her medical uh, care, that's terrible. Like, I mean, that's really terrible. You know, I I think that, that, um, you know, the problems that we have with access to medical care in this country are, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're atrocious, that that we even have to deal with that. You know, the wealthiest country in the world, um, and and there are people who have to choose whether or not they're going to keep their home or get medical care that they need. Um, mm-hmm. most, uh, one of the most common causes of uh, bankruptcy is a uh, medical bill. That should never happen yes, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Yeah, yeah. And with, and with people, I'm sure, you know, you see that um, now that people don't have adequate housing, you know, there's a whole other level of illness that comes just because sure. you don't have shelter. So this yeah. stuff is preventable. It is, and and that's the thing. You know, an ounce of prevention is a pe- was worth a pound of cure. Is is mm-hmm. so true. Um, you know, yeah. things that I see sometimes. You know, I, I see patients in the hospital with multi-system organ failure that could have been mm. uh, completely treated with five 
hours worth of medicine just two months earlier. Hmm. Wow, five dollars, yeah. Five dollars. Hmm. You know, and and, and it's, it's just simple things. President Obama, Obama um, said it. You know, uh, as hmm. a non-physician, he said it brilliantly. If you control for obesity uh, and cigarette smoking, you reduce the, the incidence of diabetes, hypertension, osteoarthritis, uh, COPD, heart disease, stroke, cancer. Just those simple things, lifestyle changes, and you, you, mm-hmm. you can eliminate 80% of the cause of, uh, of illness in the United States. It's not rocket yeah. science. It can be done, mm-hmm. and, it, it, and it's it's so simple, but it's made to be complicated because they throw politics into the health care. Stop. Right. It doesn't need to be them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah. Wow, well, it's so wonderful, um, you know, having a, a scientist on, on the show who's also <laughs> – a creative, um, but then science is creative. You know, it's all the same, just different parts of your mind working together. Math and music, same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm really yeah. looking forward to next week, you know. Um, are you are you a part, yeah, you're, you're, you're a part, are you a part of the... Um, uh, the program next week on Thursday? Yes, yes you no, are, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to hearing some of your poetry because you all are, like, together. It's going to be like, oh, my gosh, it's going to be so awesome, you know, just sort of like in one room, so to speak, right? Yeah, well, Kim is uh, a really the, the, good facilitator. She mm-hmm. really is. Um, so uh, next next time I'll, I'll get a little more romantic with my poetry. <laughs> <laughs> it's all love anyway, right? You know? It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> right. Well, Wanda, you take good care. I, I, I wish, yes. Yeah, I wish you a happy new year, and please stay Thank healthy. Thank you. Be careful all right. out there. You as well. Right. You as well. Thank Be safe. You. <laughs> all, all right. Good. Peace and blessings. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. So I want to let uh, you all know, remind you, just in case you didn't know, that we are having the opening reception for the Ma'afa at 25, uh, celebrating Ma'afa Commemoration San Francisco Bay Area, 25 years, 2020 to 2021 October. And uh, we have this phenomenal exhibition with featuring eight artists, among them uh, Alan Kimara Dixon, uh, Tassin Sabir, um, James Gales, um, William Rhodes, Michael Ross, and oh, um, Baba Anyinka, Inkululeko, uh, and uh, and we got our dear sister Marva Reed, and myself, as I mentioned. And so tonight we're going to have um, some virtual tours of the gallery. We're going to also have artists talking about their work. Um, I had told I thought we were going to do it in an hour, but it's going to be a little longer. But you you want to you want to definitely hang in there and come to it. And then we're going to also gosh, it's going to be so cool. We're going to have um, uh, OG Rev uh, Harry Williams is going to be uh, sharing um, a uh, um, public service announcement around why Black folks need to wear masks. But he's also going to bless us with a prayer and and uh, yeah, 
Ava Square is going to be doing libations. And then we got Sister um, uh, Karishi is going to be doing a really awesome poem that she she composed for the Ma'afa twenty Ma'afa at twenty five, and she didn't get a chance to share it at the Ma'afa commemoration in October twenty twenty. So she's going to share it tonight. It's going to be very nice. And then we're going to start the re- the uh, the tours, and then we're going to. You know, stop as I said at seven for the author talks, and then we're going to have some really wonderful music. Um, uh, it's not going to be live, but it's going to be pretty awesome. And we're going to be um, uh, playing the music of our brother um, uh, Tosin um, Aribasella, who, um, yeah, he's got some. I'm going to be playing some of his music, and I'm going to be showing you some of his music videos as we continue the tour. So it's it's going to be really nice. And in the way you can join us, it's going to be on Facebook Live. So you just go to my go to Facebook Maafa SF. No, Maafa. <laughs> I'm too excited. Maafa Bay Area, and uh, it's going to be streaming there. It's going to also be streaming on Facebook Wanda's Picks. It's going to also be streaming on Facebook. Uh, Remember the ancestors. It's also going to be streaming on Facebook. Um, Wanda Sabir. So. All my platforms are going to be streaming this, and and if you know me, or even if you don't, you send me a send me an email, and if I see it in time, I will send you the Zoom room link, and you can be in the house with us. But otherwise, you know, it's going to all be good. Just put your questions in the other chat, and we will, um, you know, be able to share those questions with the um, the artists um, when we have the uh, artist talk again from from about seven to eight thirty tonight. Uh, 7 to 8.30 Pacific time. All righty. And the exhibit is up through September next year. No, excuse me, September this year. We're in this year now. <laughs> so you don't have to worry about, you know, um, in trying to, you know, get it all in right now. And then you should look um, to my office SF Bay Area calendar to see where we're going to be having different um, events, talks with the artists um, in, in, in conversation with some other uh, makers here in the Bay. So with that, I am going to play another Meklit Hadara. We didn't get a chance to get through one day uh, like today. I really like that one. Um, but I think I'm gonna um, I'm gonna play. Uh, I don't know. This one here is called "We Are Alive." I think that's a good one. So I'm kind of like feeling "We Are Alive." So, but I really like um, Meklit and Quinn. So I'm gonna play "We Are Alive," and if I um if I'm still sitting here <laughs> uh I am going to play We Are Alive and thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Wanda's Picks. Um this is our second cuz you know the new year was uh on the 1st last year. Gosh, last year. Last last week, I'm sorry, last year, last week. And um and we have the great conjunction and this is the age of Aquarius, so everything needs to get groovy and good and so everyone stay safe. Wash your hands, keep your hands out of your face, and wear your mask. And follow the science, follow the science, follow the science. And, uh, yeah, take good care. Peace and blessings. We are alive.